What's up? This is the Weird, Fat, and Sober podcast. I'm joined by my good friend Travis Guggenstein. 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 What's up, doggy? Hey, what's going on, dude? I'm trying to think. I've known you pretty much all of my sobriety except for the first 60 days I was in treatment. Yeah. So uh, when you when you showed up to IOP yeah. with an acoustic guitar and I was like another fucking one of these guys. <laughs> and you actually knew how to play it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and had meaningful lyrics and I was like, "Oh, this guy's he's pretty neat." <laughs> just coming there playing Wonderwall and just <laughs> just flexing on the you the chicks ever, in IOP. You guys ever listen to the Animals album by Pink Floyd? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. <laughs> I defended it against somebody the other day. It was you. It was me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking shit on sheep. Yeah, I was like, "Dogs is the only good song." You're like, "How dare you say that?" Well, that's true. Dogs is the best song oh, on, that, on that album, but it makes all of the other stuff worth it. How you doing, man? How's your How's your um, semester wrapping up? Whoa. Last one, right? Uh, no, August is when I graduate. Uh, okay, cool. So I got another like two thirds of a year to pile through. Thirty seven credits to knock out. Damn, uh, probably. Um, no, thirty six credits. So. 21 in the spring and then 15 over the two summer semesters. Right. And try to start grad school in the fall. 15 in a summer semester? Over the two summer semesters. Fuck yeah. I that. had to get an overload permit from, from, uh, good convenience. God. You're fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. How's, yeah. um, how's the recovery industry treating you? Dude, it's, that's a, it's pretty interesting because, like, I've been in it now for a minute. Um, cause I guess I technically started with choices. Okay. Yeah. Which would have been October. 2017 and then there's a little hiatus when i was just living with russell and working at mattress firm but then i started out at the facility inpatient ranch july 2018 and i've been working for them i'm still working for them now so i've worked for i've worked in treatment industry for about two years now right close to two years and i've worked inpatient and sober living yeah. Um, for two different companies. What's harder, in, inpatient or the sober living? No, inpatient. For sure. Your worst problem in sober living is someone coming back high All right. and having to deal with that. That is a normal occurrence at inpatient. Right. Yeah. Like, fuck. Your worst problem in inpatient is when you have, you know, RA, recovery advocate, basically techs, adult babysitters mixed with drivers, mixed with occasionally we get to provide, you know, like support and guidance. Right. Amazing, beautiful job. Um, but in terms of like the ratio of staff to client, it can be tough. Like if, uh, the hardest situations I would wind up in is, you know, we'd have like three RAs on a shift, right? One of them would be down at the hospital because they had to follow a client who had to get ambulanced out. And the other one would be getting clients ready for a transport to a meeting. And you would be the only RA on campus. And we have 40 to 45 clients on campus. Fuck. And you have to do checks on all of them because the nurses would help out where they could, but they're also dispensing meds. Yeah. And if it's past five or six, there's no counselors on campus. So you're just running around trying to take care of everything. You, you know, you'd get five or six tasks on your plate and just constantly like drop in small things. And it's hard because you'd have to balance like the stuff you have to get done on shift. So that would be like observation sheets, notes in the program. We use Sigmund, which was like for recording all notes for insurance and legal purposes. And also like just quality on clients, you know, like follow up and observation, just like, hey, I talked with client about da 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 da. This is how they're doing. Their counselor can go in and check that, and, and it helps with their continuum of care there too. And on top of that, then you have a client who's like, can I get my cologne from the closet? And like, I'm doing four other things. Uh, yeah. And it's like, but I want to smell good now. <laughs> and uh, it was funny because I learned working there that sometimes like spending that extra minute getting them cologne 
would put out a fire like two yeah. hours later of them just getting pissed off because like I was an impatient. I was just an absolute shitbird. Oh yeah. You know, and so like sometimes it was worth it just to spend that extra minute. Right. I feel like I was pretty like calm and impatient, like just because like I was so like broken that I was just like, and plus the place I went to was really nice. And so when I got there, I was just like, ah, I can breathe. Like, I don't have to worry about like, (laughs) I don't have to die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and like uh, my meals are taken care of. Like I, we just, uh, my, one of my coworkers just went back to treatment after relapsing Mm. like yesterday actually. And I was like, dude, and he'd never been to treatment. He went straight from active addiction into IOP and sober living, which is you know, and he, he got like some time, like a few months, you know, doing that, which is kind of remarkable, I think. But and I was just yeah. telling him, I was like, dude, inpatient, like it sucks because you like emotionally, you're like not prepared to deal with your shit, you know, but it's like kind of yeah, just yeah. getting a break from reality. Yeah. It's, I always joke with when I worked up there and with clients and sober living and other people in the recovery community that have been through inpatient, you know, I joke with them about this and to people that haven't been through inpatient treatment, if they ask what it's like, I use the same joke. Like it's the world's weirdest mix of county jail and summer camp. <laughs> yeah, you know? like exactly. I, like it. personally, I never had to go to jail. I was just uh, yeah. a white male in Colorado Springs driving drunk. So I mean, as long as I didn't break a law, obviously I was safe. Yeah. Um, but I did a psych hospital, so I guess more aptly, it's a weird mix of a psych hospital and summer camp, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like crush vibes and music and drama, <laughs> but then also, like, you got to be in bed by this time, and also someone may have just died. Yeah. You it's... Know, someone may have just eloped and died. So it's a really, dude, it's so hot and cold and impatient. Uh, yeah. It goes from, like, ha-ha, funny, cute, to deadly serious uh, in, like, yeah. a fucking second sometimes. I remember the house manager at the house I stayed at, like, he was really cool, you know? But... um like I, I, he would have these moments where he got really serious about stuff, and I'd be yeah. like, "Why? Like, what's going on? What's wrong?" And it's yeah. like, "Oh, well, a client that was here six months ago just died, and I found out, you know, or something like that." And it's just, yeah, it's, it's a weird environment, you yeah. know, because it's like, I remember being there, and like I had a lot of happy, fun times because I was just like feeling good, you know, like you know, feeling better about my life and situation, and like making friends with my roommates and everything, you know. But then it's like serious too, so it's yeah. it's a weird. It's a weird vibe, you it's know. It's the bipolarism of it. It's like the the hormones and emotional highs of high school just condensed into thirty days. <laughs> yeah. You know, the first three days is figuring out what clique you're gonna be with for the rest of your time there, basically. Oh, yeah. And then the next seven days are being super dedicated to groups and like also hang out with your clique. And then weeks two and three are like usually finding some unhealthy romantic partner if it's co-ed uh, Yeah. Right. Or if you're married, arguing with your wife. Uh, yeah. And then the last week is usually like, I just want to get the fuck out of here and be done. That's what I've watched, you know, again and again and again. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I was not the model client in treatment at all. In my head, I thought I was. Right. I was like, I'm so smart and I get all these groups. But I also got high three times and kicked in a door. So Fuck. objectively speaking, I don't think I was calm. Yeah, and you didn't go to treatment here in Lubbock, right? You went to no. treatment in Colorado and then came here? Um, in New Mexico, up in oh, Taos. Yeah, I went okay. to this place called Shadow Mountain up in Taos. It was a 90-day all-male treatment center inpatient. Right. It was on this mountain up in Carson National Forest. It was like this four-mile dirt road. Oh, yeah. Like you'd just be driving. There's this road that would connect Taos to Angel Fire. I don't know the name of it. It was like a little two-lane highway through the mountains. Right. It was just a dirt turnoff. It was just four miles up this mountain. I like, shit you not. You know, you're going up this dirt road that barely fits the van that we're in, the little druggy buggy, right? And you pull up, and there is, like, a metal gate 
with one camera in one light, and I'm not even joking, <laughs> wooden palisades. Like, you know those giant wooden stakes oh, yeah. from, like, Braveheart? Like, it was those, that was the wall. All right. Yeah, because it was, like, sheltered in the back of this little valley. And so there was a wooden palisade wall <laughs> with a gate. Yeah, it looked like he's like, been there since there 1840. <laughs> yeah, like, Kit Carson himself just, like, swung down after an expedition and, like, boom, let's get drug addicts so I don't know. That's cool. I mean, was it like, was it a lot of outdoors based type stuff? Like, did y'all hike and do shit like that? Or towards the end of my stay, yeah. Um, the only reason that we didn't is I was there December sixth to March sixth, and it was a pretty brutal winter, oh. and so we just couldn't do a whole lot of outdoor stuff. I mean, right. We went skiing like every weekend. But oh, that's I can't dope. ski to save my life. Really? Yeah, dude. Somebody I from Colorado that doesn't ski. Dude, yeah. I think I've skied and snowboarded three times in my life, and all three times have not been good. Oh, yeah. I think the first time when I was a kid, I don't remember nothing bad happened other than. I fucked up going down a hill. My mom tried to save my ass, and she tore ACL real bad. Fuck. The second time I was with my friend David up at Keystone when I was in high school. <laughs> We're at the top of this mountain, and he was trying to take me down the bunny slope, like the 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 one at the top of the mountain. There was like a real slow grade, right? All right. And I fell into a black diamond. Fuck. <laughs> After about 100 yards, I just took my board off, and I spent four hours walking down this mountain. I almost died because uh. I fell into, a like, a little ravine. And, like, the snow is packed so hard up there. And if it gets wet, it freezes on top. And so, like, if you fall in certain areas, you just slide. Right. Like it's concrete almost. Yeah. And I was heading straight towards a rock. Oh. And luckily, like, my feet sunk in right before, and I, like, went like that. Oh, yeah. And my head in the snow, like, two feet before the rock, board, like, bounced off, scratched the hell out of it. I was walking down this mountain this whole time. I'm like, I just can't wait to get to the bottom and get high. Like, I hate this one to go home. <laughs> and long story short, I almost interrupted the qualifier for the X Games. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was walking down. There's this little service road. I was like, this has to be a shortcut. And, and I take this little service road, and I come out of the trees. And about less than 100 yards in front of me is a half pipe. Oh, shit. Where people are competing. And there's like a crowd watching and cameras. And I'm just like standing there. And I'm so selfish of a person. That I, I was so selfish and so tired that I debated just walking through and just not caring. All right. But obviously, I'm too terrified of people judging me. So yeah. I just took the longer way down. That's funny. Found David. And he's like, hey, man, how are you doing? I was like, let's get in your car and smoke weed. I want to leave. <laughs> I hate this. That's great. I never, I never done the whole skiing thing. I'm just poor. But I just, we were too poor to do anything like that. We went to Six Flags in summers. That was it. Uh, yeah, I was, just, I was just blessed growing up. Like both my parents. My mom didn't make a whole lot of money. She was a high school teacher, still is. My dad made good money, you know, doing data hardware sales, yeah. um, usually to military branches and stuff like that, um, as far as I know. Um, but I had everything I ever needed, most things I wanted. My family was pretty frugal. Right. And there was, like, a period of, like, a year growing up. My dad was in between jobs where my mom got, like, real creative with Velveeta cheese and hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> And she did a damn good job because I didn't even know we were poor for a year. Right, right. I didn't even know. I mean, I knew they were arguing about groceries every Sunday, but I was like, this is just what adult married couples do. Like, they write out in their schedule, let's fight about food every Sunday. Right. Um, yeah. So the Taos treatment, um, you didn't really do much outdoor stuff, but I mean, how long were you there? You said nine, three, not 30, 90 days? Yeah, I was there 90 days. Towards the end, we got to go on some hikes and stuff, which was pretty neat. Nice. Um, yeah, I was there 90 days. What was uh, Is that the only treatment you've done? Yeah, that's the only inpatient nice. treatment I've ever done. I've only done one detox, one inpatient, one IOP. Me too. So far. We are the elite few. On wood. <laughs> wood in this room. There's this wood right here. It's, it's, drywall. it's a wall. There's wood in there somewhere. Get the stud finder. So, um, 
what were the situ what was the circumstances leading to you go to treatment? I mean, I've I know I've heard you share in in 12 step meetings before a little bit, but I've never really heard it um just fully presented. I mean, what was what was the situation like? Um I was a quick burn, man. Um I I think I had like a couple drinks growing up as a kid, like sneaking some beer like some wine off my parents at Christmas, like a sip here and there growing up as a kid. And like, I always wanted to be drunk. Right. Because every time like adults drank, they didn't argue. They just laughed. <laughs> I remember being like four in Mexico. My dad got drunk on tequila. Like the only time, one of three times in my life I've seen him drunk. Right. And he was like pole dancing in a sombrero. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. As a little kid, I was like, that looks fantastic. So, but I got drunk for the first time when I was 15, and then I got sober when I was 18. Right. Um, I never got into, like, heroin or crack or meth. Never did cocaine or molly or ecstasy or acid or mushrooms. Like, I never got into any of that stuff. Not for lack of trying. Just people didn't think I was cool enough, quite honestly. <laughs> like, the, the, like, the kids that I hung out with in high school did that kind of stuff, and they would not let me do it with them. Right. They would do, you know, they would take No, man, you don't want none of this. Rather, you know, they'd pop two tabs and watch off the air on Adult Swim. Oh, my God. And I'd be the asshole sitting there nursing a beer because they didn't buy me a tab because they're like he's too fucking depressed to trip ass i don't want to hear him <laughs> talk about it um but leading up to it uh going into treatment uh yeah i was 18 i was living with my parents rent free i was again just getting fired like from minimum wage job after minimum wage job right working there for like a two days a week a couple weeks getting fired you know for not showing up or showing up late because i'm drunk or just not showing up, not calling in. Um, at that point, I was drinking vanilla extract was my main deal because I was under 21. No one would buy right, it for me. Right, right. Every time I drank, like, out came the racial slurs and the screaming and the fighting <laughs> and like, all the stuff that isn't who I am, but, like, who I was for sure. What racial slurs did you say? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so no one would buy liquor or anything for me, obviously. Yeah. And so... um. I Googled 11 household things that get you high. Oh, fuck. And that's how I got into vanilla extract mm. and keyboard cleaner and huffing gasoline. Oh, too. Um, dude. Like, I know that you, f you like probably feel like, oh, I didn't get into anything hardcore like heroin or meth. But it's like that shit is way more hardcore than heroin or meth, dude. Like, fuck. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like huffing itself is like one of the most dangerous ways oh, to get yeah. high and it is like Absolutely. it's so bizarre i mean i know i've done it i've done it on accident and i've done it like i've done air duster yeah. and i hated it but you didn't like the womp womp no like and like every time i did it i did it like three times and every time i did it i immediately had a, like a migraine afterwards <laughs> and i was like and it's like and it's like oh fuck my head you're the light bulbs like i remember i was like 18 yeah. working at this pizza place and i found some key some uh keyboard duster or whatever the fuck and took it into the bathroom and like you know hit it and i just immediately was sick afterwards like i needed to go home they're like what happened i was like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm a, a little weird side fact about the computer keyboard industry so they caught on in the mid-2000s that kids were getting yeeted off their keyboard cleaner yeah and they were just getting spiked on it they put bitterant in it they put in this chemical that. that specifically tastes bitter so kids would stop huffing it. Oh, Obviously, that didn't work. It oh, just yeah. made it a shittier experience. Right. But I remember because I'd hit it and be like, oh, my mouth tastes like 
like old ass. Like it oh, just yeah. tastes awful. Like a mix Ugh. of burnt rubber and dirty laundry. Just chemical bullshit. Yeah. yeah it's terrible. So, I mean, what, what was like the breaking point of like, you know, what was the event that occurred to make you go to treatment? I mean, did your parents catch you or? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I'd been like lying for months. I had already like tried no, I didn't really try it, but I had already gone to 12-step meetings and lied there and, like, not stayed sober. Been oh, really? So you were doing 12-step meetings around 18? Um, Yeah, the first 12-step meeting I ever went to was April 10th. It was, like, April 10th or April 12th of 2016. Basically, I went up to Fort Collins. I'd, I'd started a bender earlier that week. My best friend David, his dad, died. And they're were, they, uh, they were Russian Orthodox Jewish, so they don't believe in embalming. So his dad died on a Sunday night, like 11 p.m. So we had to have the funeral for the next three days before the body started decomposing. Fuck. Um, and so the funeral was on a Wednesday. And so on Tuesday, I got vodka from a co-worker, or uh, no, a uh, classmate from this community college chemistry class at Pikes Peak Community College. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I left that school with a 0.0 GPA. Fuck. Um, but yeah, I, I got vodka from her Tuesday. And I got blitz Tuesday night, woke up drunk Wednesday, kept drinking, went to the funeral drunk. Uh, went to the wake, drunk, blacked out some point there, drove home, knocked a mirror off the car, blamed it on drunk Russians. It was not their fault. <laughs> I remember actually what I did. I clipped, a, not a yield sign, but like an upcoming, <laughs> it's one of those yellow signs that shows impending curve. Right. I clipped it because I wasn't paying attention to the impending curve. <laughs> And, uh, you should next, have another sign that's like, yeah. sign impending <laughs> curve. <laughs> yeah, hey, don't clip this because you might be drunk. Um, and I stole a bottle of vodka from the cafe that they were doing the wake at, um, went up to Fort Collins the next day and, and just got, just kept going. Um, bad, bad bender. Yeah. Did a bunch of bad stuff that it took over a year. Um, I actually just recently finally finished amends to my best friend Arden for what happened that night. Right. So that happened April 9th of 2016. And as of five days ago, finally fully made things right with her. Right. Um, yeah, my my parents were just like, if you want to keep living here and not be homeless, you, you like you got to go to this twelve step group. Right. My dad's mom is an alcoholic and addict. She died. I never got to really meet her. Met her when I was two. Don't remember her, but she was using my entire life. And so my dad knew the deal. Right. Um, and my mom was really close with her great aunt. Weird, <coughs> weird age deal. But her her aunt was only about like five years older than her. Oh. Wow. And they grew up like sisters basically. And uh, she died. I think. A year before my dad's mom, she died of liver failure due to alcohol and cocaine abuse. And she had been in and out of 12 steps. And my mom knew the deal, too. Right. And they were like, yeah, you can like go to meetings and get sober and fuck off and be homeless. And so I was in their house and I was like, I have no capacity to be homeless. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll go sit in a room for an hour. Yeah. And at that point, like I was starting to want to be sober. Like I knew I was powerless over alcohol and drugs. Every time I started doing them, just things went haywire. Right. But I still thought at that point, like I could just kind of. Get things straight for a while. I wouldn't give up drinking forever, just for a little bit. Did you? Did y'all grow up religious at all? Or I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting aspect too. Like I grew up um, pretty much in the non-denominational church. Okay, in Colorado me too. Springs. So uh, Colorado Springs is an interesting place. Like, um, did like what's the level that your family believed in? Like, I'm t- like I grew up non-denominational, Pentecostal. Like, you know. Like faith healing, tongues, all that. So non-denominational and Pentecostal 
Yeah, they're two different things. But it's I, all good. I know what you mean. Right. Kind of like, I'm just curious as what yeah. you like. Uh, I grew up. What was the craziest belief that it <laughs> was accepted in the church you grew up in? I'll be honest. It's hard for me to remember because I didn't pay much attention. Right. As a kid. Right. I was just curious. Um, my parents were pretty involved in the church when I was growing up. Uh, there was this church called Pulpit Rock in Colorado Springs. Building's still there. Church is still there. <laughs> And we went, like, every Sunday and every Wednesday. Right. You know, and, like, all my parents' friends were through the church. Like, these uh, friends, we'll just call them the Johnsons that, like, I grew up with. We knew them through church. Right. And, like, another ones we'll call them the W's. Like, I knew, we knew them through church. You know, and I remember as a kid, I was probably five when Katrina happened, or six. And my dad and some of his buddies took this big toy hauler my dad had just bought. He'd saved up for, I don't know, probably close to a decade. Because we loved to go camping and ATVing and he'd worked his ass off. And him and his buddies just bought, like, all these cases of water and filled up this trailer and drove down to New Orleans to just give water to people. That's awesome. Yeah, they just did that for two weeks and oh, yeah. came back. And my mom was super involved. And then probably when I was about 10 or 11, my dad just stopped going hmm. to church altogether. He just stopped. I don't know, you know, what happened. I've talked to him about it a little bit over the past year. Right. You know, for him, like, he ran into some ideological conflicts with other people started telling him how he should live. Um, and to him, faith is not the church. Faith is a personal relationship with a higher power. Right. The thing he always told me is religion is man and faith is God. That's cool. I like that. And so, you know, for him, he just like started going on his own path. And my mom got distant for a while. But I'd say for about eight years now, she's been very devout, very involved. As much as she can be, you know, from South Korea. But she's very involved in a personal way and has always been really heavy with scripture um, right. and with talking about Jesus, you know, when I was going through addiction, asked me if I accepted it yet. I got sober and I started talking about God. And she's like, I'm so happy, you know, that you've accepted right. Christ in your heart. And I was like, hold. <laughs> <laughs> no. I didn't say that. Mom, I love you, but no. I didn't sign up for the cult yet. No. Um, and, and now I'm actually looking at, you know, going back to that faith, like the, yeah. not exactly the same type of Christian faith I grew up with, but just like looking back at Christianity and there's a, there's a guy you, I mean, Skyler is the guy that I've been talking to about. Right. I'm going to get coffee with him. Hopefully this week, look at maybe like discipleship. I was like, I don't know, man, you know, right. it's that point of emotional sobriety where like that relationship with the higher power has to grow deeper and more personal. Cause I, I got sober and needed a higher power to be sober. Right. Right. And at that time that was personal enough. Right. You know, it was like, all right, I'm a fucking junkie. I don't know what to do with my life. Like, take it, God thing, right? And that became personal. Yeah. But, like, as you go through, as I've gone through recovery, and other people have told me their experience, too. Like, as I've gone through recovery, and other people, too, reach this point where, you know, like, the 12 steps are a way of living. They are not life itself. Right. They, they are a framework so I can do life, which means I can't just hide in the rooms and pretend like that's the only thing that exists. Like, I have to go do life and the rooms and sponsorship. I have to do both. There has to be some type of not really balance, but there has to be work in both. Right. You know, which means that relationship has to become about more than just necessity, you know, to truly like be growing in constant connection, you know, almost at this exponential rate of growth, if not exponential, then at least constantly, gradually at any rate increasing, then it has to switch from pure necessity to this actual internal want. Right. And like so a, like me, a real relationship. Yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, um, like Keegan has said it really well. There's a guy he knew down in Dallas who talked about how, um, like his that dude, his relationship with a higher power started off like a like a forced arranged marriage. Yeah, you know they just he's like, all right, it's me and it's God, and like we're gonna have to work together. And I hate him, and I think he hates me, and like we have to work together. So I start because I have to, 
And over time, we get to know each other, and like this love starts to actually build. It becomes personal. Right. I like that comparison. Which I am not condoning for <laughs> but that that analogy made sense to me yeah. you know it starts off with this necessity and at some point it becomes personal you die right you know, that's what i've watched oh for sure and that's like i can relate to that a lot because like you know you know you know me since i pretty much got sober and like the first year of my sobriety was like pretty strictly christian you know yeah. like i was very active in the church you were playing the band and yeah you were active you were down at the church probably if I remember correctly, two or three times a week. Oh, for sure. And it was a big part of my life and like, I'm super grateful for it, but like spiritually I kind of outgrew it because like, um, you know, and, and I had all these questions that have never been resolved that I've always had since I was a kid and grew up in the church, you know? And so I had to like come to this place with my relationship with my, my heart power and God, you know, that like, um, all these things I was feeling about myself because of the faith I was trying to practice, mm-hmm. like, are not what my higher power wants for me to yeah. feel like shit about myself every yeah. time I fucking look at porn or every time I've, you know, yeah, you know, and so I had to kind of come to this place where I was like, I'm going to have this relationship with God, the universe, all that, you know, and like, it's going to be what feels right and not, not yeah. this like, I don't know, this weird like tug and pull where I like feel shitty about myself and then I use God or the church or worship or encounters or whatever to like, I use it like I would use drugs, you know, like yeah, change how I feel. Yeah. You yes. do the same thing with steps and meetings. Like, Oh, for sure. Fucking sponsor 10 guys and do all this fifth stuff. So everyone thinks I'm someone. So it changes how I feel. Yeah, right. Like, like faith without works is dead for sure. And like works without faith is also dead. Like doing shit just to change how I feel. Like it's just a more complicated way of getting high. Right. That doesn't feel as good as alcohol and drugs. <laughs> yeah. So I'm eventually go back to alcohol and drugs. Right. It's, but I get it, man. It's that, it's that tricky balance between, um, like accepting imperfections, but not living in complacency. Oh yeah. And like for me, that's the, that's one of the critical aspects of emotional sobriety is learning to accept there's never going to be perfection, but not using that as an excuse. Like it's that shit we heard all the time in the beginning. You know, progress not perfection. Right. It's like I find it almost three years clean. Like that's more vital than ever. Oh yeah. You know, accepting humility, and sometimes humiliation from my mistakes. Right. Like being able to accept grace, which is really fucking hard for me to do. Because, like, I'm the self-flagellator when it comes to my mistakes. I'd rather hold the whip and beat myself bloody so no one gets the chance to hit me. feel like I'm in control somehow. Right. You know? And so, like, letting go of that. But at the same time, like, not drifting into complacency, which is, like, what I did the past couple months. Yeah. Like, I started to get distant from my spirituality, from my step work, from the stuff that worked for me. And I was like, fuck it. I'm never going to be perfect. Like, I'm just going to go live like some of these other people I see. And they're sober. I don't think they're the happiest. Right. I don't want to be happiest. I just want to like be lazy for a little while, <laughs> which is not a judgment on them. That's just uh, why I wanted it because a lot of those people are not lazy. Like what they do for them works. Right. I just wanted to be lazy <laughs> and not have to do a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so I sat on a fucking inventory for five weeks that I finally finished last night. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a weird um, dynamic of yeah. the complacency thing and then not beating yourself up for being perfect, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a we. I mean... You know, a lot of times I look at like normie people around me and I'm like, dude, like the things that I like beat myself up over are like things that the average person doesn't even care or contemplate about. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I didn't meditate enough today or oh, I didn't hit enough meetings this week or whatever. Like sometimes other people in recovery, you know? Um, Yeah. yeah. Sometimes other people in recovery like, yeah, like there's someone I was talking to recently. They're like, yeah, like. I'm now just starting to pray and meditate in the mornings. 
And this person has like almost four years clean. Oh yeah. You know, and I'm like, how do you, how, you know, um, and their story is just different. And right. I, and that's, I don't know. That's just kind of how it is. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I don't know, even over my almost three years of being sober, like it, it changes a lot. Like it changes like my spirit, my spirituality and like the, the way I connect has changed, you know, and it changes all the time. Sometimes it's just like, sometimes it's just meetings. Some It's been church before. Sometimes it's music. Sometimes it's just like talking to my higher self, my higher power, you know, it's weird. It, it's always ever changing, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, I think I was talking with a client about this last night, actually, like it has to change. Right. You know, um, we were talking about, you know, relationships with his family, like with his dad and with his girlfriend, with the rest of his family too. And he was experiencing this pretty intense guilt. He was like, you know, I love him. It just feels different. And I was like, yeah, that's the upheaval. Like all of us go through, normal people go through it too at our age. You know, he's 23, I'm 21. But also, you know, I was talking with him and I was like, well, if you were a different person when you were using, you get sober and you change completely. Why would your relationships not change? Oh, yeah. I told him like, you know, I loved my family before I got clean. But he's really selfishly. I loved yeah. him because I had to, because I was a kid and I was raised in it. I loved him because I needed to. I loved them out of the most selfish place of I don't want to feel like a bad son. And I think mixed in with all that was this genuine love that like I've now gotten into a large upon with my family. But I remember having like, you know, between nine months and a year and a half clean, really being back on forth and like, do I really love my dad? Like is do I really truly love him? When I say that, do I mean it? Because I, I had said it for so long to get things or to just kinda sweep it under the rug or because that's the thing to say, right? And like recovery, you have to be honest in all capacities with yourself as best you can. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like all that shit just changes. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, it changes every aspect of your life, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's, there's like, you know, character defects that are different (laughs) than they were in my addiction, you know, there are, but there are also like characteristics like in positive ways that are way different, you know, like there's things I, I realize that I do now, like send it simple shit, you know, like, um, I don't know. I can be like pretty reliable on time type stuff. And I never was like that before. You know, I can wake up most mornings for anything, like if I need to, and it's just weird shit, you know, like there's, it's weird because like the person I imagined I would be at my age now uh, when I was younger is vastly different than the person I am, you know, but it's, but I think, my younger self would be a lot happier who knowing who I am today. You know, it's weird. Yeah. That's one of the most beautiful things recovery gave me is, you know, before the shit train that is addiction and everything with it, not just the substances, but the underlying issue, you know, that, that hole in your chest feeling. Like recovery allowed me. This is the only way I could become the man. Like I hoped I would be when I was like eight. Right. You know, I was like, I want to be a good man one day. You know, I want to have, honesty i want to have integrity i didn't really know what that meant at eight but it was on a wall and i was like that's a good word all right you know like those things that i thought would make like a good man yeah good person but you know i, I grew up like from a traditionalist background where it's like you got to be a good man which means you gotta have honor you gotta have integrity you have to have a line in the sand that you stand behind and you hold to that limit and you do not compromise your morals right you know and addiction stripped all that away and so recovery is the process of actually being able to finally live up to all that. Yeah. Definitely imperfectly, but shit, at least there's opportunity to do it. Right. And, you know, I feel like with you, um, 
I envy like you and your age group because getting sober at your age is, I think, the perfect, you know, the perfect time to get sober. Like, uh, you know, I'm 27. I'll be 28 in a few months. And like, woo woo. <laughs> like, I've, it's My knees creak when the rain comes yeah, in. Yeah, for real. I've like recently over the last few months, especially this semester, like really have come to terms with my age and like where I'm at in life. And like, it's, it's kind of, it's very humbling, you know, like looking at Roth IRAs yet. Yeah. Well, dude, like I, I had like a, a, a class this semester and the TA, like we are like the same age, you know what Fuck. I mean? And she had to like explain to me about a paper I wrote that was like pretty bad, you know? And I mm. like just did not have a grasp on like what a college paper should be, I guess, you know, it was very humbling. And I've had several experiences like that over the last few months. Like I've had a couple people on campus call me, sir. And I'm like, dude, mm. like, dude, That's like, uncomfortable. it sucks. I'm like, you know bro, I'm in a rock band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You know, I'm basically a man child. Like, <laughs> you know, I just barely started paying bills on time. Like two years ago. Sometimes like, I don't wear socks with shoes. Cause I'm just too lazy. A lot of times I don't wear pants when I do videos for Instagram or some shit. And you know, I'm not wearing pants now. No, I'm just kidding. I do a professional like presentation for a class, like record a video, and I, I literally was wearing basketball shorts and no socks or shoes, and I just put on a button up <laughs> and sat on my floor with my laptop in front of me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's so perfect. Oh, yeah. I feel like I wish life could just be like that. You know what I mean? Like, I wish he just gone public wearing basketball shorts and a button. And no yeah, one yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so. I don't know. Like I was saying, you know, it's, I think you, 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 and like, you know, a few other people I know getting sober at 19, 18, like, I think that's awesome. And I think like, you know, compared to people your, your age, like you're going to have such a, you already have such a better grasp on life. And like, you know, I, I, it's weird. I'm coming to terms with my age now, but like, I see all these people on campus that I'm like, dude, you don't even, you don't even really know what you want. Or like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's weird that people go straight into college at 18, like, and then try to figure out who they are, what they want, you know? Cause, well, yeah, I mean, I, I did that. Like I went into college at 17 the first time. Right. Yeah. You know, I was business administration and management oh, yeah. because I was on an, uh, an Air Force ROTC scholarship. I don't know and there that. are options for intended majors in order to keep the scholarship where every single engineering major and then business administration and management. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to do engineering. Yeah. So I guess I'm doing business administration and management. Right. Yeah, I went to college at 17. I was already you know blackout drinking four or five nights a week. Before was that just because of where there. your birthday is, the cutoff or whatever? Yeah, well, I skipped a grade. So I went from 6th oh, really? to 8th grade. And so I graduated 2015, but I graduated at 17. Oh, shit. And uh, that played a big role, too, in just stuff like growing up, you know. Um, yeah. That's where I learned how to be fake, quite oh. honestly. Oh, yeah. I think I had learned a lot of aspects of being fake before then. You know, I'd learned how to gossip and lie, manipulate. And, you know, if Tony told me he had a crush on Alexa. And I would tell someone else that he was in love with her, but so was his best friend. And... You know, find a way to make myself like the spider at the center of the web because I was this weird, fat, white kid that just didn't feel like he fit in anywhere. Right. But if I had information, I was like the dope man for the gossip. And it was like, hey, come to me for the good. Uh, did you hear about Alicia? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I skipped a grade. I had a bowl cut, fucking circle rim glasses. I only wore sweatpants and keep Austin weird t-shirts. I never lived in Austin. <laughs> And like these, <laughs> it's like Reebok dad sneakers. Uh, yeah. you know, just part of me embracing the dad shoes again is like, uh, I've, I've always worn dad shoes. And that's just, I was, I grew up on dad shoes. Oh yeah. And I like skipped a grade, man. And 
And it was so weird to be in the same middle school. Yeah. And skip a grade and not know. Bye. A, a, not know a goddamn soul in the new grade. Oh, yeah. And like still run to the kids I grew up with. But now I'm like a little bit different. <laughs> Just know? flexing on yeah. them. And there's these kids I hung out with that were witty and smart and like to talk shit on a lot of people. And I was like, all right, this is who I am now. You know, I'm just oh, yeah. going to be a sarcastic douchebag and get into, like, nihilism and Anne Rand and objectivism <laughs> and not understand half of it, but oh, understand yeah. enough to talk smarter than people. Right. <laughs> Dude, that, that carried me a long time. Right. That's great. <laughs> yeah, half understanding books to outsmart people in a two-minute conversation carried me way longer than it uh, had. It still is. Not <laughs> to this day. To this day. The pretension is my my castle. All right. So what? I mean, I've never even asked you this or known why. But what what made you end up here in Lubbock? I mean, because uh, you know you're from Colorado, went yeah. to treatment in New Mexico. I mean, what what was the move to get you here? This is this is weird that you're asking. Yeah. This is like the fifth time I've talked about this over this past week. Like, really? This is the fifth time it's come up. Synchronicity. So- I just thought of both police songs. Synchronicity two is better than Synchronicity one. <laughs> I'm not a huge police guy. My my bass player is a huge police guy. He, For you audio listeners, I dropped my head in shame. <laughs> I know the. I mean, my mom jammed them. I know who they are, but I'm just not familiar with their whole oh, discography. But. In terms of like how I wound up in Lubbock, man, I was in treatment and I was coming off a third relapse. Um, the treatment center only thought it was my second. Right. Still only oh yeah, you I relapsed in treatment a few three times. Wow. Yeah, my second day. Like 28 days in and then 40 days in. No, oh, no, no, more than that. No, it was like. And they didn't kick you out? <laughs> no, I don't. That's. Yeah, I look back on that and I, I call that God because I should have been out of there, man. Yeah. Like I watched guys get high and get bounced out. Right. You know, like like the second night I was there or the first night I was there, there's these guys up in one of the houses smoking heroin off foil. And uh, they had made hooch as a going away party present for two of the guys. <laughs> Um, Fuck. yeah, for two of the guys, Preston and Pops, who are both dead now. Uh, they died a couple weeks after they left. RIP. They went back up to Wisconsin. It's okay to laugh, man. It's a fucking ridiculous idea to make hooch to leave. Trouble, oh, I'm, right? yeah. I'm, Dude, I'm not laughing like a, at their death. Yeah, I'm no. just like, that's no, man, so it, funny the, to me to make hooch in treatment. Like, what was fucked up is like, I heard about their death. They told us, right? And I still got high. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, man, dude, they're fucking dead. Like, this shit's real. I'm going to go steal some extract from a church kitchen. You know, like, yeah. that's how the disease is. It's like, oh, dude. Someone yeah. could, you know what I mean? Someone could just point of, like, uh, what was it, that fucking video, Pleasure Unwoven? It was like, if a normal person. Oh, yeah. yeah I had to watch that. Like, if you point class. a gun at a normal person, if someone has a bottle of beer in their hand, a normal person, you point a gun at them and say, I'll shoot you if you drink it. They set it down. Right? Yeah. But, but not if you point a, a gun at an alcoholic, he asks you if it's loaded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, uh, yeah. And that's just so quintessentially fucking true. Oh, dude. Addicts you know? die next to other addicts all day and, like, it doesn't affect them. You know what I mean? Yeah, lower tolerance. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's fucking rummage ra- in their pockets and still the rest of their shit. Their dude, he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, you know? like, yeah. There's I mean, always that. There's always another fucking. Dude, I was like, for me, that's one of the symptoms of addiction is just like quick answers <laughs> yeah, to yeah. everything. All right. Um, what did you relapse on in treatment? Well, the so the second day was hooch, which was funny because the first day I showed up, I was like, I'm gonna get the sobriety thing down. I'm gonna do all my groups. I'm gonna win at therapy. <laughs> Don't know why I thought that. Um, I'm not joking. Genu- show that therapist who's really good. I'm not joking. I was like, yeah. I was like, I am going to do so good at this that I will stay sober as long as I want to be sober. Just stay sober out of spite. Yeah. So I got drunk my second day. Uh, of course. <laughs> you know, and shaved my head in the mirror with a Britney Spears moment. 
I had this pretentious saying when people asked me in the treatment center why I shaved my head. And I was like, oh, fucking shit, dude. Uh, I would tell him in the most serious of tones. When, Paul beca- when Saul became Paul, his vanity was the first to fall. And I don't know why no one punched me in the mouth. Uh, the second time was on some extract that I stole from a church. It was, uh, there was a meeting in a church, and they had like a kitchen. And I just stole all the extract. I'm going to the bathroom. Yeah, in the exactly. kitchen rummaging. Yeah, I'm just like, it was great because the meeting was in, there was a candlelight meeting, which for some reason is always quieter. Oh, yeah. Just naturally subdued. All right. In this room, and there's a doorway, and then there's the kitchen. Right. And like the cabinets I'm rummaging through are on the wall with the meeting. Right. And so I'm trying to silently rummage through glass bottles. <laughs> and I wind up getting like an ounce and a half of extract total. Like not enough yeah. at all. And it was all like almond extract and orange extract, which is anywhere between 90 and 98 percent alcohol. Really? It just fucking hurts. You just man. chug it? Chug the whole thing? You chug it and then your throat burns and you feel like oh. a cat with a hairball. And you're just like. Ah, ah, oh. ah. Like that, just trying to fight back the throat. Fuck, man. I just got a little tipsy. See, like, you may, never, may have never put a needle in your arm, but, like, there's no question about it. You're a drug addict. Dude, like. yeah, I signed a blood oath for heroin when I was in treatment, knowing there was no heroin. <laughs> I was with these two guys in the house, and they were like, yeah, dude, we got heroin in here. And, like, I was 99% sure they didn't. I was like, they're just fucking with me. He was like, I'm soft, and they think they're hard, and, like, they were harder than me for sure. Um, and they're just fucking with me. But that 1% of me, the junkie of me, was just like... And I'm like, a blood oath for heroin's a pretty good deal. <laughs> you know, like, I got a lot of blood, and blood I don't have brothers. a lot of heroin, and I've never done heroin. <laughs> I had this logic where I was like, I'm already in treatment. Did you, like, cut your hand and shake each other? Or, like, Dude, no, I, like, I pricked my, I, I, they wrote it out. Oh, and I pricked my finger with it. a thumbtack and signed it in blood. <laughs> and our morning group, the next morning, they gave it to the clinical director. Damn. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I just thought it was a joke. <laughs> but I had this fucked up logic where I was like, what better place to do heroin for the first time than in treatment that's the name of the episode travis and the heroin blood oath <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh, that's great question mark exclamation point question mark exclamation point <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> yeah. that was the that was the, that was second, the second one and then the third time was a bunch of nyquil oh, a bunch fuck. of nyquil like we went up to red river we go snowshoeing what's snowshoeing? snowshoeing is a miserable experience oh, yeah snowshoeing you know you'll see them in like ski lodges and shit it's oh, those, like, like a giant, tennis racket things. yeah tennis racket like oh, wicker yeah. shoes right oh, right and we go snowshoeing and like i guess it's fun but it's not fun for a bunch of out of shape drug addicts and alcoholics that have been eating a lot of food and <laughs> smoking one to two packs a day all oh, right and we're just hiking through the mountains and snowshoeing's exhausting oh, yeah it's like three times the energy for every step because you're pushing, and you go into the snow a little bit, and you have to pull it back. It's like, just imagine constantly walking in gum oh, yeah. with giant feet. If you had, like, so fake terrible. bare feet, always in gum. <laughs> and this is a fun recreational activity that people do. And I remember I got so fed up with it, I was like, I'm just going to get fucking high. I hate this. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was funny, because, like, I didn't plan on getting high. At that point, I, I had been chairing meetings while I was in treatment, like, praying to this higher power every night. I was trying to be more serious about therapy. I was participating in groups, but I wasn't working any type of step at all whatsoever. And we were out there and I was just like, fuck this. Like the thought came into my head about getting high. We stopped at this like uh, grocery store to buy like Gatorades and stuff because everyone was dying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we were all dehydrated. And uh, I feel to this day, I feel bad for our techs. There's two of them. 
and there was not that many of us. There's probably only about eight of us, which since I've worked in inpatient is not a fun ratio, but it's workable. Yeah. A four to one ratio is workable in Fuck. public with clients, right? But as soon as we get into this grocery store, without any communication between us as clients, everyone just disperses. Yeah. You know, and like it basically looked like um like a CVS where it's like aisle after aisle after aisle, like or we're like one of those like neighborhood Walmarts, like about that size, right? Right. And we just <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> and one text up at the register trying to pay for everything. Because we were smart and waited. We were smart and waited till one of them was tied up. Right. And this other tech, Jacob, had to chase all of us and prioritize which ones to chase. All right. The and more I got at so risk lucky. Ones. Yeah, that he chased the guys that ran to the liquor aisle. Right. Whereas I was like, I'll be the smart cookie here <laughs> and I'll go over to the cough syrup. Yeah. And I stole this bottle of like kids' NyQuil cough syrup and me and this kid, Nick, split it 50 50. And, you know, within 30 minutes, it was gone. And we're sitting in the van. And I finish it. And I'm not joking, Dan. Like, within a minute of finishing, I look at him, and I was like, that's not enough. Yeah. We stop at a gas station Still to get more. cigarettes. And we're standing in line. And I have this big, puffy jacket on. And there's, like, the, the little gel capsules of NyQuil, you know, and, like, the little boxes where it's, like, four per box. All right. There's, there's, like, eight per box. I forget how many. It's, like, 48 per box. All right. right? There's 10 of them. I'm looking at it, and I'm talking with Nick, like, whispering, like, how many should we take? He's like, I don't know, man. How many do you think we should take? And I was just like, all of them. <laughs> and so all ten. And he, like, does this stupid thing where he gets between me and, like, the person at the cash register thinking they would somehow not no. just see, like, this 320-pound kid desperately <laughs> shoveling boxes into a jacket. And somehow they didn't. Oh, fuck. Yeah, and I just got really, really high and robo-tripped and forgot that I had to... uh Oh, and I forgot that I had my fucking, uh, my family call. Yeah. So I, I was on the phone with my parents, you know, just like, yeah, my steps are going really good. Sobriety feels good. I enjoy this a lot. Um, thank you for treatment. This is going well. And I must have said that three or four times because I was just high trying to make sense. Um, and I got honest after the first one and the third one. And the third one was January 15th. 2017, and I count my clean date from alcohol and drugs as January 16th. Yeah. the first day I didn't get high. That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't had to get drunk or high since then. I've come close a handful of times in recovery to getting drunk or high. Probably right. about seven or eight times I've come close. Either because it was there, or I just got so dry and bitter that the obsession hit, and it was like, I'm going to go find something. Yeah. And every time it was a phone call or prayer and meditation, or both. Yeah. I almost got high before one of your shows once. Really? So, I mean, you're a month away from three years, and I've known you for a long time, and I've seen you go through quite a bit of things, you know, but what, what would you point to as being, like, the hardest thing that you've gone through thus far in your recovery? I mean, I don't know. For me, it was, you know, last summer I went through a breakup. Yeah. Um. I got fired from a job for the first time in my life, you know, and like, um, it was just terrible, you know, and the fact yeah. that I had like survived, it was really only because I, um, you know, I started going back to meetings. I got a new sponsor, but I mean, what was, what's been the hardest thing that you've had to go through in your recovery? It's hard to pin down one, you know, cause they get hard for different reasons. Right. You know, at one point when I was at the door, I sat on a fourth step for two weeks. I've been fired by my sponsor for half-assing it, and I just didn't. 
look for a new one. I was sitting on inventory, and I came really, really close to drinking my roommate's alcoholic mouthwash, who ironically was the sponsor that had just fired me and was also my roommate and also had mouthwash with alcohol in it. I, was, I came really close to drinking that in a bottle of window cleaner, and it was like John and Bravo and Jason. You know, I text him, hey, can you guys, like, talk for a second? And they were all over there within two minutes. Right. And, uh, yeah, Jason held me like a baby like while I cried with all that shit that was in my head. So that, that was definitely one of those moments. Um, man, I, I'd have to say the hardest one because it took so long, and there was so much growth that had to come out of it. Over such a long period of time, um, I went through a breakup, my first sober love breakup, back in July. Um, and it was a really codependent relationship. Um, it had gotten really unhealthy uh, for both of us. We're both really good people. Like, my ex-girlfriend and I are both really good people. Right. And it just weren't right. And it was one of those early recovery relationships where it was never meant to work out. And it's either one of the ones you get high over or you learn from. Right. You know, and for me... It was tough because it wasn't just the breakup and how much that sucked and how much that hurt. And the first time I actually had to be sober and deal with all of that, it was my parents also weren't talking to me at the time because their marriage was falling apart um, and they were trying to save it and work on it. So neither of them were there for me. And my sister, as much as she wanted to be, was also dealing with her own stuff. And so for the first time in my life, the people that I'd always looked to for validation to make me feel good, to tell me who I was as a person, basically... The people that I would be good to to prove to myself that I was a good person instead of a piece of shit doing good things to forget he's a piece of shit. Like, they weren't there. Right. You know, and I remember sitting in, in my friend, yeah, Will Johnson. I was sitting in his truck, and I was like, I want to fucking kill myself. You know, because, like, here I am, you know, over two years, two and a half years sober, and, like, I'm still using other people to try to feel okay. Like, I've two and a half years clean, but I've still been running. You know, two and a half years clean. How many guys sponsored? How many fifth steps? And how many meetings? And how many speaker meetings? And conferences? And college? And it hit me that I'd still just been running. Right. You know, that I'd still just been scared of being who I was. And doing, you know, and, and for me, like, getting sober. I talked about with my sponsor recently. Like, I got sober, and I thought I had to be someone else. Because who I was clearly did not work. The way that I approached life, who I was, what I thought, what I did... Served only to get me drunk and high and burn myself and other people down. And so this idea got planted in my head, not by the 12 steps, not by meetings, not by anyone. I think just really by my own fear that in order for me to have a life, I had to be someone else. And like for me, the 12 steps was the way to just magically not be myself anymore. Right. Um, and like what I found over two years of struggles of like getting fired from job sober, being homeless sober, Having an engine blow up in a car sober, not like physically explode, but like the top half blow out. Fuck. Filled with oh, I remember that. Smoke. You bought that. You bought somebody's old bought car. Ross's car. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I had to sit on the phone with poison control because I had breathed coolant fumes. Oh. While my boss at Mattress Room was like, ah, you're fine. You can stay for the rest of your shift. And I, I turned to him and I went, I'm not going to die for Mattress Firm. <laughs> <laughs> he just went, mm. Oh, yeah. Um, over the summer, that breakup, because... And I mean, would you say that that was your first, like, real, you know, like, time really feeling like you were in love, being in love? I mean, was that? I had been in love once before. As an adult, I guess I should As say. As an adult, yeah. I had been in love yeah. before when I was 16. And that was by far way more unhealthy and codependent. Right, than, like, right. Oh, yeah. Shock out of my mouth in the bathtub level. You yeah. Know, just like that kind of shit. And I was also drinking uh, back then. But right. This one, yeah, you know, it wasn't just that I was sober and I had to feel it. 
And it wasn't just that I was more than sober, but in recovery, which means I had to do the work on myself. It was that I'd gotten sober, Dan, and like I'd built all these little dollhouses in my mind. All these little avenues and paths of life that at some point I was going to like use God and the rooms and people to just build this life that was so good that if I lived it, I would have to be a good person to deserve it. Right. I was terrified of doing the introspective work to actually that deep, just dark, muddy work to start genuinely believing in a daily personal way that I'm a good person. That felt much scarier and much more for a long time impossible than just acting and building a good enough life to feel like a good person. If that makes sense. No, I know what you're saying. That's kind of like instead of like really feeling and being a person in recovery, like you kind of felt like imposter syndrome where you just had been playing a role and just doing all the going through the motions, doing all the things, but internally not feeling every result of all these actions that you're performing, you know, like it's, which I feel like, you know, early on, like to do that is good, you know, but like eventually, like at some point you, you got to really feel all that internally, you know, like drugs and alcohol out of the way. So you can start to feel it later. Right. Comes the task of feeling without running back. Yeah. But like I'm I'm grateful I it took me months but right. You know like today and fairly recently I guess over the past like 5 weeks 6 weeks. And I actually became grateful that she dumped me. Right. <laughs> it was no, that's humiliating awesome. and embarrassing and it was it was painful, yeah. right? But if she hadn't done that and I just kept fucking building dollhouses, I don't know if I'd be sober right, right. now. Right. You know, and that's how see that's how I lived before I ever started using. Yeah. Even when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be an army man. I want to be a good man. It was still just like build a little dollhouse life for Travis. And if he it just forced myself to fit into it, and right. if I fit, then I'm good. You know, always looking for the external things to prove that I'm worth something. So I was terrified of who I was when it was like three in the morning and just me and the ceiling fan talking. And I was like, I don't fucking know. You know, and like with that breakup, like it didn't just break down that delusion that I had that I could just fix myself basically through other people. Like, by fixing, like, quote-unquote, fixing them so I don't have to look at the shit that I'm doing, being controlling and manipulative and dishonest and just overall delusional and playing God in my own life and other people's lives, right? But I remember doing inventory with Kip, and he that's that's where I get the phrase dollhouse from. He was like, oh, nice, Travis. He's built this little dollhouse life and tried to force her into it like she's not even a fucking human being. And I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you are so right in the most painful, helpful way. Oh, yeah. But that led to this beautiful realization that sucked and why I got complacent and lazy. Cause it was a lot to look at. Right. I had done that with so many other things. Oh, yeah. You know, and when she dumped me as much as it sucked, that finally, that first one broke down. That first dollhouse broke down. Oh, yeah. Right. And I saw that I couldn't keep doing that. And what happened after two, three months of doing work to process that and a backslide of getting coffee and some whole mess there. And I finally learned the fucking lesson that I needed to learn. Right. Then it was turning and realizing, like looking out on this like visual field of my life and there was a lot more dollhouses. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more things <clears throat> that I built up and I couldn't keep living in those. Yeah. They just weren't going to, because if that first one didn't work, why would those, you know? And that's like the work that I've been in lately. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take the rest of my life. Right. I get that. And it's, I, I can relate to that because I feel like all my life I have like, and I still do it some, but like I reflect off of the people around me, you know what I mean? Like I, 
kind of chameleon to the situation I'm in socially or whatever, you know. Um, and it's not necessarily like a negative trait or a defect of character, but oh, it's really it, helpful for addiction. Yeah, it's very helpful yeah, for absolutely. addiction, you know, like it. Um, oh, I've never done coke before. Like, oh, I fuck, Ooh. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's it's weird. Like, into sober living, it's like, yeah, I've done fucked up shit too. Yeah, I'm yeah, bad boys. Right, exactly. Yeah. I feel like, um, the like what led me into drugs and and stuff was that kind of me me having that personality type and admiring like you know people who are already like on that path you know in similar ways like admiring the fact that like their personality is like allowed them to you know get girls attention or whatever you know what i mean so like i kind of chameleon to be like them you know yeah. what i mean and it's it's so i can relate you know it's like well, it's like it's not just chameleoning because, like, I knew that. Like, right, I, I know what you're I saying. I, I mean, that's like just to my relation like, to what oh, you're saying. Yeah, no, but, I'm sorry. I no, just no. um, because like for a while I got hung up on that. I was like, well, if I'm just my authentic self all the time, then I don't got to worry about chameleoning. Right. Which sounds really nice in principle. In reality, I was just way more of a sarcastic asshole and went, "Call your sponsor about it if you don't like right, it." Right, right. You know, making it other people's problem. Um, and for me, like, it, it went deeper. Um. Because it wasn't just that I was reflecting and other people were reflecting off because pe other people are always going to influence who you are as a person. Who right, right. As a person. Like they're always going to contribute. There's no question about that. Like if I'm going to include people in my life in a meaningful way, it's because they are going to contribute things to it. And when they leave, they will take things with them. That's what being a fucking human being. Is right, right, opinion, right. And like my experience, you know, but it was like this deeper question, almost like metaphysical because I overthink, right? Like the amount that I overthink out loud with other people, I also do in my own head. And that's just how I've always been. Was... Am I just mirroring other people or am I just living as an actual mirror? Because there's a difference between just reflecting other people's actions and behaviors and trying to fit in and be cool. And this genuine core belief that you are nothing but that. Right. You know, there's a difference between not really liking who I am and kind of just trying to fit in by modeling other people. There's that. And I did that too. But for me, it was deeper underneath was, no, that's all I am. Right. You know, and if I strip that away, then there's nothing. You know, and like a good analogy would be the key difference would be looking at yourself in the mirror sober for longer than two minutes, oh. which is hard. I it's don't hard. like doing it. I, I didn't either. do it today. Yeah. This <laughs> I person like I listened to. Four hours of sleep and like jerked off to porn twice. I don't want to look in the fucking mirror right. right now. Recently, this person I listened to, like, uh, they were talking about they they don't they're not an addict but they went to a wellness center, and their their therapist told them that they need to like tell themselves they like tell tell yourself you love yourself in the mirror every morning mm -hmm. and he was like dude this is the hardest thing I've ever done like it, it feels so weird and wrong but oh, it's it like you know and I and that's something maybe I need to work on too and I feel like you and I both have struggled with like self image self worth like yeah, it's it's my biggest fucking thing and I'm you know knowing you have known that it's something you struggle with too mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's it's like it's weird because it's like it's super unhealthy a lot of the time most yeah. of the time but it also is a good aspect because it can push you to work harder and yeah. be better and become better you know what i mean and i mean that's that's the danger of like all character defects is they're not entirely bad yeah like they true. work yeah like the most dangerous thing about my character defects is when they work like the worst thing i can be is right yeah. Because then I think magically that I'm just going to be right all the time. Right. And like the worst aspect about dishonesty is it passes sometimes. And the yeah. worst thing about being selfish is sometimes other people let it slide. Or even worse, it gets me what I want. Yeah. Right? Like the dangerous thing for me about character defects is not that they're inherently bad. 
that's fucking easy to get. Right. And I sit there and I look at that column. I'm like, holy shit. Like, I'm self-righteous. I'm a poser. I'm fake. I'm a home wrecker. Like, I shouldn't be those things. The problem is that they work sometimes. Right. And you can be sober and they can still work in narrow circumstances. And, like, for me, that has fucked me up for a while. Learning to let go of things, even though they still work occasionally when I really want them to. <laughs> you know? And, like, that guilt and shame... I've struggled with for a while, and it's a guy in the rooms, Greg, who's helped me out with that a lot. Um, and he pointed out to me, you know, in, in the 12-step fellowship that you and I both work, where it talks about a specific step. And part of the wording that step says, you know, take away these things that are objectionable. Mm. Right? And he's like, well, how do you think you find it objectionable? And he's like, you do it and you feel shitty. When you did it in addiction, you didn't care because you didn't find it objectionable. Right. You know, it wasn't something to give up. It was a necessity. It was a tool. It was a benefit. And when I do them sober, it feels objectionable. I get that. Well, you talked about it, just that like internal reaction. It's almost like, for me, really weird. But like, you know, those like random lollipop flavors. Yeah. I fucking hate banana flavored. It's garbage. To <laughs> the me, little right? dum dums. Yeah, with the, the random mystery. Mark. The yeah. reaction is almost like opening that and just putting it in my mouth, and I go, ah, <laughs> fucking banana. You know, but that's how I am with character defects when I act out on them. Certain ones, I just like, you know, this morning I had to make amends to Dom. Yeah, and I was just like a selfish dick, just in conversation. And as soon as I did, I was like, why? Why am I doing this? All right. Like that type of reaction. For anybody listening, Dom is Travis's roommate. Mm-hmm. He's a good boy. Sick good boy. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot of good stuff, and it's like um, you're a pretty deep person. I feel like the majority of our conversations are like are similar to this one, you know. And um, yeah, we don't really ever talk about the weather. No, no, and I love that. And I remember telling my therapist like early on uh, in IOP, like the less I talk about the weather, and the more I talk about God and deep things, like the better off I am spiritually, yeah. and like. I don't know. I feel like it's hard to in recovery, like especially in 12 step, like, and that's, that's always been my struggle with going like continually on a regular basis, going to meetings, you know, is like, I know that, you know, now I know that like, yeah, you're going to hear the same shit most of the time. And we're supposed to go to, to like, so if we share and we even just, we share the same shit we've shared a hundred times, like the person who's never heard it, hears it, you know, but it's hard, (laughs) you know, like my, my perspective with that is, like, I'm grateful it's always the same shit. Right. Because, like, I'm crazy, dude. Like, no, I, yeah. And that's one of the best things yeah. about it, too. Just like we were saying about character defects with positive and accident. Yeah, and I, no, I'm not trying to, like, preach or push, but, like, I, dude, I just go insane. Like, I get into these, like, delusional places where I just think I have things figured out. Right. And, uh, you know, I'll start to change all these things in my mind. I'll start to skew perspectives. I'll start to believe I'm in control or it's someone else's fault. Or, you know, a couple times in recovery, I've gotten dry enough to be like, am I really an addict or alcoholic? What I've been struggling with lately, am I really a sex addict? Because part of my right. recovery is also recovering from sex addiction. Right. Well, I'll be completely honest. I've been doing jack shit about that. Right. You know, the past, like, two weeks. Um, and, like, that delusion will come up. And there's just something nice about showing up to a room. And even though my life has changed drastically since the first time I heard that stuff, it's like this anchor. Because I'll change so much and I'll become in a sense, like kind of like unpinned. Right. And I'll feel like I'm kind of floating and lost and I'll just show up to a room and sit down and someone who doesn't know what's going on with me will share the same thing they've shared time and again. And it'll hit me in the situation that I'm in and remind me of like this rock solid foundation, you know, with all these things shifting and changing, that's fine. It's almost like a boat 
you know, with a lead tied to the dock. Right. It can float anywhere. <laughs> but if it gets too far, you pull it back in. Right? Yeah. The danger when I lose that is then I just float aimlessly and I don't know how to get back. Yeah. And, like, I've been there a couple times, and it can be really scary, you know, especially in early recovery, I felt like it was a lot more okay to be lost. Where it got harder, and I've talked to other people, you know, like like you and other guys and gals with time, it becomes a lot harder to admit when you're lost. Yeah. After like because you're supposed to be this pillar of recovery and and like, you know, a solid person mentally and spiritually, you know, and it's like, dude, like, shit still happens, and like we all of the things that we were in our addiction are can still come out, you know, in other ways or the same ways, you know. That's yeah. I mean, a lot of pressure, you know, and. It, it's uh, it's difficult because the first person that always puts me on a pedestal is me. Right. You know, like the first one every time. You know, I'll get into fear about, you know, do people look up to me this way? Do they rely on me this way? Like I can't let them down because then they'll reject me and then I'll be alone and like I'll be shitty and scared and alone again. And I remember what it's like to be alone and scared in my parents' basement. I don't want to be that ever again. It's like that hornet's nest of thinking will build up. And, right. And that that's consistently what I've seen with guys and people I know that have gone out after a couple of years is like they stop talking about that kind of stuff. They show up to the meetings, which is good, and they share about what it was like when they first got sober. Yeah. But they don't share about what's been going on. And uh, I don't know about you, but like I'm I'm not very emotionally sober most of the time. No. You know, it's, it's something There's a lot I... more growth that has to happen. Like I have to share about that shit in meetings. Right. I just do, you know, because... A, it helps the newcomer because it's like, oh, I can still be honest at three years. Yeah. And I don't have to be perfect. And then B, I don't know, man. It's just showing up and doing what I did when I first showed up, which is like, I have no fucking clue how to live. Right. The last few meetings I went to, um, it was, I was like, okay, I got to get back to going to meetings on a regular basis, you know? And like every time I've gone, you know, I didn't hear anything from people who have the same amount of time for me that I was like, oh, that's great. But the people who had a few days, you know, a couple, a couple times, like every, almost every meeting that I've been to since I started going back a few months ago, like I've heard like somebody who was just like desperate and broken. And I was immediately reminded like, Oh, that was me. Yeah. Like, Oh, like, uh, yeah. you know, and then, then there's like the even more humbling reminders, which yes. is the people with like three months clean that are on fire. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fuck. I've got seven sponsees. I'm like, I don't have any. <laughs> Dude, or I, I like, I have a couple sponsees and they're like, yeah, I'm just like peaceful and happy with God. I'm excited about it. I'm like, I've been treating this like online homework assignments uh, yeah. where you show up and do it and go, oh, it's submitted to the discussion board of God. <laughs> you know. You just run and have a discussion post due tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Last one. Hey. Uh, yeah, you brought up like changing relationships with God. That's something I actually just wanted to talk to you about like one-on-one as a person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like tell me about that. Oh, I mean, it's weird, man. Like, you know, my, my you've met my dad and like yeah. love my dad to death and I know I'd be dead without him. You know, yeah. he's... He, paid for me to go to treatment and he's a great man and his spirituality is deep and it's trippy bro like there'd be times where i'm like loading a needle and he calls me he goes what are you doing right now i'm like what? nothing and he's like i just feel god is telling me that you're up to no good and like i should be worried about you and i'm like have a loaded syringe i'm like nothing is going on like i'm just at the house hanging out like about to poke myself you know <laughs> like his spirituality is deep bro like it's, it's freaky yeah. like he'll have dreams about like stuff i'm doing and then tell me and it's like that was what i was doing like it's it's spooky like he's called me late at night before when i'm up to no fucking good and he knows but at the same time like my dad is a pretty strict person like with his faith you know and like um like i won't i won't i've you know gone into my childhood before and you know my story on on the podcast you know but 
like I had a good childhood, but like I was brought up with like this criticism of like, you know, I have to be a certain way. I have to have a certain faith. I have to have a certain type of relationship with God and a certain belief system. And man, I struggle with it all. I still do, you know, almost three years sober. I struggle with like theology and like, you know, and I'm so curious about other paths of faith and like, you know, I, for, for like the first year of my sobriety, I was like, you know, doing what my dad did mm. spiritually, yep. what I was brought up to do, you know, and like, yes, I felt good most of the time. And yes, it was keeping me sober and it was it helping me. But like after a year of it, I got to the point where it was like, I'm doing stuff that normal people do that the average person does like masturbate or, you know, have sexual relationships, you know, I'm 25 then. You know, like stuff that normal 25 year olds across the planet are doing. And I'm fucking hating myself for it. Even though I have a good job, I'm in sober living. I'm like, you know, a pretty good client of the sober living. Like I'm trustworthy. I'm, I'm doing well. And I fucking hate myself, you know? And like, it was just this relate this like tug and pull I'm having with my inner demon, you know, of like trying to go to church on Sunday and then, you know, fucking somebody Saturday night or whatever, you know, I'm like, it just got to the point where I really had to ask myself like, and it wasn't even like all of it was me. All of it was in my head. It wasn't like God was making me feel bad about myself. You know, it was like, what kind of, it was like, what kind of Christian am I? Am I, what kind of example am I setting? If I'm doing this, praying when I'm doing all this janky shit, Yes. how fucking selfish Well, it's not even just like, I'm not even grateful with this shit. It wasn't even like my prayer or worship or meditation. It was all about my like position in the church being on the praise team, you know, like if somebody's like, is somebody going to come see my band, you know, play in a bar Saturday night and then me play in church Sunday morning and judge me. And I'm worrying about all this kind of stuff, you know, and I finally had to like sit down and like really like, you know, I had heard it so much in AA and from other people like, you know, a God of our own understanding, you know, like, like people have to get to this point in, in the rooms where they model their higher power, kind of how they want, but how they feel, you know? Yeah. And I, for a long time, and it's still this way, I've like kind of depicted my understanding of God as music, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can either in music, you can either be in harmony with a note or um, in dissonance. It's interesting too, because like being in harmony is an experience. Like you have knowledge of how to be in harmony, right? Like how to actually... Um, like music theory match notes right and if it's a g note you know how to play that on a guitar right. and be in harmony with another instrument playing the g note all right but you only know when you're in it when you experience it right exactly and so like i came to this conclusion like i'm just gonna live my life the best i know to be harmonious with god and nature and the universe like some days i'll be dissonant some days i'll have dissonant feelings within myself but like yeah. that's okay that's all part of music you know like that's what yeah. makes life and energy and music all beautiful you know and so it's just one big jam band yeah baby. man i mean <laughs> there's a rock and roll heaven i'm sure they got a hell of a band <laughs> but uh you know it, that's a it's just my personal depiction of it that's the way i can understand it and it sounds kind of woo 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 new agey and like I, I I have a lot of like different beliefs that I take from different faiths, you know, like yeah. when I meditate, I like do, you know, guided meditations or like things I've heard from different people, you know, like, um, I don't know. I, I feel I've come to this place now where I really believe and like feel and not just think it or say it, but I, I, I feel like God is bigger than religion. Like God puts all these religions on earth and all these people with different pathways all to him. Like, you know, 
Jesus and Buddha and, and Muhammad might all be right. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it, it's like, who am I to know or to try to understand like the, the vast, you know, the everything concept that God is, you know, yeah. which is everything, which is you and I, which is every fucking little thing around us is desk, you know, like the fucking air, like it's Adams. all, it's all God. It's all part of the, of God and the universe. And like, if you really think about it, like harmony and dissonance, like everything then can lead to those two things, you know? So that's yeah. just, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I like that, that idea, that kind of contrast between harmony and dissonance, like the two planes to be on. Right. Cause it's like, you know, being in recovery and someone tells you to get honest when you want to lie, you're like, not really sure. You're like, okay, can't say no in this program. Right. And you get honest and just something like clicks inside. Like, the word I've used for, like, three years, and this is kind of trippy, too, is harmony. Yeah. Like, something just lines up. Something I am not aware of, because I wanted to lie. Right. And I tell the truth because someone else tells me to, and something lines up. And, like, it feels exactly like harmony. Something is now in line where before it was not. Right. And, like, that's that feeling that I've heard a lot of people talk about. A guy in a meeting last night shared, you know, he his conception of a higher power is, like, um, like this calm but running river. And when he's going with the flow, he just lays on his back. In the river and he floats. But if right. he gets up and he walks against it, it's pretty fucking hard to push against. He's like, so I just look for when I feel like I'm pushing against life. And a, and a woman who's there also shared the same thing. Like that conception again of just like, you know, of, of this peace, serenity, harmony versus dissonance and conflict and contradiction. And like, um, I mean, that definitely comes from the Eastern philosophies of like, you know, yin and yang for sure. Right, right. Uh, but I mean, you also see a lot of that in like the Christian theology, right? Mm -hmm. Like. And the Christian theology, when, when people act in accordance with Christ, they feel joy, not just happiness, but this this idea of this internal alignment with God, of this joy, right? And when they don't, like, for example, when, you know, when Moses comes down from the mountain and they're worshiping the false idol, and they still keep doing it, but some of them are like, oh, shit, like, we shouldn't have been doing that. That's that feeling of, like, unalignment or disalignment. Right, right. Uh, or, you know, disharmony? Is that uh, dissonance, I mean, dissonance? I don't you know, go. yeah, I mean, but... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the positive and negative, you know, yeah. God and the devil. I mean, it's really, and what's like, even, even if you think about it in Christian terms, like God and the devil are the two opposites, but like God made the devil. Like it's all still him. Like, you <laughs> That's know, it's still trippy to me. Yeah. Oh, for That's sure. That's still trippy to me. I saw a meme on Reddit the other day that was like, um, so let me get this straight. God loves you so much that he created the devil. And I can't, I'm fucking it up, but he was like, and, but the devil, if you listen to him, punishes you forever. And like, it's, it's yeah. like, it's a weird, yeah. you know, I mean like, Thanks to atheism. <laughs> oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I have a, I have atheist friends. You have, we have atheist friends, yeah. you know, and like, uh, Shit, we have atheist friends in recovery. Yeah. And like, honestly, I over 30 years and he's an atheist, a fucking right. militant atheist. Yeah, I'm going to have him on eventually, Terry Don. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I really want to hear all his shit. Yeah, just, sit, just sit there quietly for an hour and listen to him talk about like the <laughs> nine different lives he's lived oh, he's I deployed know. in the Pacific. Yeah. Prison or what, all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Yeah, he's, he's gonna probably come a soon. fucking haberdasher in Europe. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, you know, I I take from everything I can. Like I um, you know, I was listening to Richard Dawkins the other day. Like I I try to take from everything I can because I feel like if I really truly believe in God and believe that He like created everything or or all creation comes from Him, yeah. that means that like atheists and Buddhists and Muslims and and every conception of God and every conception of like enlightenment came from you know creation itself. You know yeah. what I mean? Like 
I don't know. A lot why of my yeah. Why wouldn't infinite God take finite forms? Right. Exactly. That's, that's the place that I wound up coming to, and like that may change for me in the future. But yeah, like I get that. You know, if this if this thing is everything, why choose one form? Right. You know. Um. I think you know. For me, there, there's not only just the 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 theological and philosophical difficulty of what this conception truly looks like. Does right. it matter what it looks like? Right. Right. Does it matter that I know the road ahead more? than the fact I'm walking on it. Right. Right? Does it matter that I know the destination more than the fact I am moving? Right. Right. And for me, too, like, um, the struggle, too, is... I don't know why, but I guess I've always viewed growing and living as two different things. Like, I always have to put one on pause while I'm doing the other. You know what I mean? You know, jump into the work, do a bunch of work, find all this growth, and just, like, be super involved in the program, but the other things in life kind of suffer. And it's like, okay... I'm going to do other things in life, like work out and get in a romantic relationship and have awesome sex and, like, get into hobbies and, and like, watch The Mandalorian, which is dope. It's not a plug, it's but it's dope. dope. You should watch it. <laughs> I'm not paying. Yes. Hey, Disney. <laughs> no, I've said fuck way too many times on this for Disney to right. ever sponsor me. I said, I have gasoline, Disney Plus. Please sponsor me. Um, you know, um, and always, like, that dichotomy of, like, flipping between one or the other, one or the other. And it's almost like a hamburger patty where I'm just, like, getting burned on one side. And feeling raw on the other side, like flip, you know, yeah, I, like get burned out with like the steps and works. So I just like flip to being lazy and doing my own thing with life, right. like, which is enjoyable at first. That starts to burn me out. My program feels kind of raw and not attended to, so I flip back again, right? You know, like, <laughs> like flip flopping and uh, you know, I don't know. Like I think something that that I need to pursue personally that I have not been is, is viewing those things as the same. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I've I've always really compartmentalized growth and introspection and work. You know, with the steps, with God, with other people. I've really compartmentalized that away from life. And when I've had my most beautiful moments is when there's no fucking separation between the two. Right. And they just flow seamlessly like like a wicker basket. You know, it's just like weaving in and out of each other. Even better analogy, like mixed thread where it's like they're, they, they're the same cord. Like two different threads in the same cord. The same real material. Right? Um... But I, it's funny, dude. That's like feels like a consistent theme of our talk today. Is like, like this black and white dichotomy of you know, like God and the devil, like step work and life and being we're in recovery and being dry and like, you know, being sober, playing at the bar, and it's like very much like back and forth, back and forth, right. I think for me, a lot of that came from addiction, you know, like right, oh, high highs and low lows for sure. Yeah, you know, like the roller coaster for sure, the high highs and the low lows, but also everything in life seemed, for for as gray and ambiguous as a lot of things were in active addiction, I did rely on a lot of black and white. Oh yeah, I was either the victim, like I I was the victim, like the world was wrong, and I was right, or I was wrong, but it was also the world's fault. Yeah. Like it was very much one or the other, and then I got sober, and like that was really helpful, right? Travis, you are either lying or you're telling the truth. Stop saying that. Well, I just think I'm being considerate with what I'm saying. Fuck you. Like, you're lying or you're telling the truth. Oh, yeah. And people told me that. And I was like, okay. You know? I was like, I'm not really being selfish with this girl because I do like her. And it's like, doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're not selfish. Right. You know? And, like, that black and white was helpful. It still is. But it's come up in my life a lot the past couple months, this, like, reoccurring phrase, like, God is in the gray. Yeah. You know, if it's an infinite God, why are there only two options? Oh, yeah. like, something I've been called out for is using the phrase, I see this going one of two ways. <laughs> and I had a spiritual advisor go, I don't fucking care how you see it going. You're not God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. 
that's a lot to process, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like, oh, oh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, um, sorry, I cut you off. My no, head. you're good. I, I forgot what I was going to say, but now I remember. So, like, if, you know, you said a while ago that you're kind of curious about the Christian faith mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, like, one thing that I really appreciate about my time spent pursuing Christianity in, like, a deep way was, like, um, I tapped into a way to really, like, have a spiritual experience through worship, you know? And for a long time, I thought, like, this is the only way I can have a spiritual experience, you know? But AA taught me that I can have a spiritual experience in a lot of different ways, you know? Like, I remember my first fourth step, you know, and my sponsor um, who told me, you know, I remember I had plans that night to go do something. And he was like, okay, here's your character defects. I want you to meditate on these pray to God to ha- ask him to help you to remove them. And... You know, all my life I had like grown up in church and had spiritual experiences during worship and stuff, you know, and with my dad at home playing his guitar and having spiritual experiences doing worship, you know, like with that night I had like a really deep spiritual experience where I felt the presence of God, you know, like in a deep, meaningful way. And it was just me and it was just meditating over my character defects and feeling, feeling, you know, like what, like feeling that the truth in those things, like in who I had been in my addiction and those defects that I have, you know, they're my fourth step, you know? And so that, that really changed like in a big way, like my, understanding of like what a spiritual experience is and like how tangible it can be, you know, and now, now I kind of like the way I access it now really, I mean, a lot of times it's just me playing music by myself and like, I kind of get into this meditative trance like state and like I can feel different, but a lot of times it's stuff like this too. Like, you know, I have really good deep conversations about God and stuff and I come out of it and I feel like life breathed into me, you know, and I, I feel, yeah. I literally feel different. Like Uplifted. it's, yeah. You literally right. feel like kind of a, almost a high in a sense, you know, yeah. it's like, but it's so much better and cleaner and clearer, you know? And yeah. It's, like what are the, oh, fuck, I was in your little antechamber room in there back when this was Pat's house. Yeah. We did this meditation, you know, and it's like a 20 minute long meditation. I come out of it and I felt like I had popped two bars, <laughs> yeah. you know? And like, it was one of the trippiest experiences of my life. I'm right. this, and I've been coming to this little meditation meeting, this men's meditation meeting on Sundays. Right. Um, one of those beautiful things about recovery too, is those guys did not know me well at uh-huh. all. And it's like, yeah, come along. We'll tell you right. everything about our lives. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll also listen to you and tell you input if you want it. Um, and I remember I was sitting on the couch in there, looking out that window, feeling that exact feeling you're talking about. And I noticed in your neighbor's house, behind this house, there's a Douglas fir tree in their backyard. Oh, yeah. Which is not native to West Texas at all. It is the Colorado State tree. Really? Yeah. That is the I think I know it. Forest. Yeah. I know I exactly the tree in. you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. It's huge. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? <laughs> I've been coming here for three months. This tree's obviously been here longer than I have. All right. But yet again, that synchronicity. Yeah. You know, one time, dude, there's just so many examples of it. All right. You know, and like, you know, with you, with playing music, with meditating that way, with also with conversations. You know, I remember talking to Stuart B and like for him, meditation was like doing tasks and focusing on every little detail of it. Right. You know, where Ryan B was playing music and also writing and you know, for some people it's yoga and Tai Chi and for others it's like me, it's like sitting completely still yeah. and just dedicating that time, which in and of itself is also an action because it takes effort to do that, right? 
See, I think do, like, I think our problem yeah. as a species is that we are all doing these things and like we're all pursuing that feeling, but like we don't know how to communicate to our fellow man. Like this is this is a spiritual experience. Like I think we cop out soon too. I think that's the issue too. Right. You know, is I think we sell ourselves short for just the experience. Right. You know, because I mean, think about it this way. It's like it's almost like living life. Um it's almost like living life, and like Emmett Fox talks about this in Sermon on the Mount, which is an excellent spiritual book. It comes from a Christian perspective. Um, if someone's willing to want, you know, drop for even a little bit, you know, their prejudice and pretension, like I was told to do, it's a beautiful reading. And he talks about how this idea of heaven is just experiencing a closeness to a higher power, mm-hmm. you know, and what it is, it's a matter of perception. He talks about that the plight of mankind is we are like colorblind men in a rose garden. Just because we cannot perceive the beauty doesn't mean it's not there. It's an issue of perception, not existence, right? And for a lot of those things, I feel like the plight of mankind is like such a broad, ambiguous term for me to use. But still, um, it's that people sell them short, themselves short, that those spiritual experiences, those moments, those feelings, that's, what's, that's what you aim for. Right. When in reality, that's more like being colorblind in a rose garden and getting these snapshots of seeing what it could be like, right? All right. But then you offer that man full color vision. He goes, no, 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 I'm good with just the snapshots because it takes a lot of work. And like, I'll never be, have that perfect perception. Right. But I think like something I've done in my own life, I've seen others do in some capacity. I know I have definitely done is like search relentlessly for those highs to change how I feel in sobriety through spirituality. This led to a lot of amazing growth. Right. But like that in of itself is not nearly a large enough end to last 60 fucking years of life on this earth. Right. You know? Um, and so for me, like, I, I definitely agree. I think people don't talk about it enough for sure. There's like this barrier of pride and kind of oversensitivity because every time people talk about God, they think that you have to adopt the opinion they're talking about. And that's right. not true. No. Um, and, but I think also people like myself, well, like I'll do this too, is sell myself short and think that those are, those experiences are what's to be aimed for. When in reality, life has those every single day in every single capacity. You know, because if I think about it, I don't cause those experiences. Like, we don't sit down and start talking with the intention of, we're going to talk until we feel God. Uh, yeah. Like, we just talk and it <laughs> right. starts to happen. Right. So, like, to me, my theory, for audio listeners, I use quotes. <laughs> like, Air God, quotes. The, like, connection to God is not a feeling, but it's an action. It's experience. Right. And, like, the feeling is just the byproduct of it. Right. But it's through living that that's found. Because why else would this higher power give me a life? If it's not to find it through that living of itself. Right. Which is kind of like a far out idea for me because it means getting the fuck out of my head, which I hate doing. I love building a little palace of Travis's sadness and control in my head where I think life happens up here. Right. But it really doesn't. It happens all around. You talked about that with the desk and the molecules and uh, atoms and uh, everything and memories and past and future. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The trippy spiral and everything, <laughs> right? But, you know, it's, it's in that, for me, like, it's in that living. It's in those moments. Right. Like, for me, that's why sponsorship was fucking dope and still is. It's because you sit down with some dude, you have no fucking clue who he is. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know me. You know, we sit down, we talk for an hour. I just tell him how badly I've messed up my life. He tells me how badly he's messed up his. And for some reason, we both feel hope. Right. What other situation in life do I sit down with a stranger, tell them how much of a failure I am, and I feel good? Yeah. (laughs) Like, if that's not God or higher power, I don't know what is. Or even being an addict, like a first-step experience, admitting I'm powerless and unmanageable. Shorter words like Russell Brand, I'm fucked, right? Why is it at that point I felt more hope than I had in three years? Yeah. 
Like over the three years of using, it was this progressive spiral downward into less power and less manageability. I don't think I really ever had power and manageability. Right. But it became increasingly clear I had less and less and less, right? At the lowest point is when I felt the best I had in three years. Not the highest, not some way in the middle, the bottom. Right. Because that was the experience that was living, that was getting out of denial and thought and into the truth of reality. Yeah, and like, you know, I, I used to think this, and I still do in some sense, but I've never really tried to like, you know, express it outside of Christianity. But it, it, it like when I was like super Christian, I, I used to think, I used to kind of hold this belief like we were created to experience like our oneness with God at all. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you're good. Uh, he just burped in the mic. If you didn't, he couldn't tell. <laughs> but we we were created to. We are created as our our souls. Our consciousness is part of the oneness of of God and oneness of all things. And like because of our human form of our physical body, we feel disconnected to that. So we are really like created to be kind of addicted to the spiritual experiences. Yeah. Addicted in a sense. But we, we yeah. replace it with drugs and alcohol because we forgot or don't know how to connect that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, um, you know, we, our lives are so, we're so divided in ourselves and from everything because we live our lives in our bodies, through our mind, through our eyes. And we only live in the, the, the ex- experience of our perspective, yeah. but really we are bigger and greater and connected to everything. Yeah. And we forget that. It's you really know? interesting to be a human being and you live in a physical world and a reality that objectively, well, people can argue this in the comments section <laughs> for sure, but for the sake of the argument, you live in two worlds, right? Like your body exists in this physical world that is a reality, right? If someone throws a softball at me and it hits me, right. that's not an issue of my subjective perception necessarily as much as objective reality impacting it, right? Right. And then there's the second physical world of reality. living in which happens entirely through my brain. Oh, yeah. Right? And like that's the other dissonance, dimension. I think another plight of mankind Right, is the dissonance between those two things. Right. The dissonance between subjective perception and what actually seems to occur. You know, and you'll see that a lot. Like in psychology, there's cognitive dissonance. People right. that are health nuts, but they smoke a cigarette. And there's that weird feeling inside. Just just cigarette smoking alone is cognitive dissonance. You oh, know yeah. it's bad You're for you. Drug I guess addiction that's literally dissonance. the most basic example yeah. of cognitive I mean, dissonance. Drug addiction, alcoholism, smoking cigarettes, like all of that is cognitive dissonance because right. it's feeling good about dying. Right. It, or feeling good while dying. Feeling good while actually physically being worse. Right. Um, do you mind if I text my sponsor? No, go quick? ahead. Um, and like, I feel like religion and like religious ideologies can be cognitive dissonance too. You know, it's like, yes, I believe God is everything, but it's like, I also believe that like, I have to follow this one religion to be in line with God. And it's like, oh, well, if God made everything and God made all of us and God made every religion then. Right. And like, you know what I mean? So that's like, that's part of my hang up as with religion and stuff. And like, <laughs> I just have too many questions, you know, I, I have the like questions. Then does it matter? Right. Exactly. Like I don't the, think it the differences in conceptions and, and all that. Like, yeah, you know, if, if it's one God of anything, then okay. And then, I mean, you touched on this too, right? It's like, like your personal belief is, okay, I'm going to live as what I believe as best as I can and follow kind of the rule of harmony and dissonance. Dissonance is I'm not doing it right. Harmony is I am. Right. Like letting go of guilt and shame. Um, I even think like there's this level of serenity. I don't know if I'll ever reach quite honestly. If it's realistic or just another one of my like, I'm, like rabbit goals. hole obsessions. Uh, so yeah. I can feel like I'm doing something sometimes. 
where I think people just don't even care anymore. Yeah. I look at guys like Buddy G. You know, oh, I'm gonna have on very soon. Oh hell yeah, dude! I that's gonna be a great episode. Cause yeah. If you tried to have this type of conversation with him, he'd just be like, "Who cares?" Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Right. I remember, uh, you know, I was talking about character defects. He was like, "So what do you what do you do if you get into this character defect?" I was, he called me out. Um, I you know I read off my uh, this uh, the situation like resentment and fear. He said, "What's the character defect for that?" I was like, "Oh, selfishness, self centeredness and concern." He said, "No, no, 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 no. What did you do?" I don't know what you mean. Like, what would you call someone that did what you did? I was like, fake. He goes, oh, poser. So you're a poser. I like, get like, hurt, but there was this relief to her. I was like, okay, no, right. thank God someone said it. Two and a half years in, someone said it, you know? All right. Um, and, and he's like, so what do you do about it? And I was like, well, I pray. And he goes, no, don't waste God's fucking time with something you can do. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? And he's like, yeah, stop being it. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean stop being fake? He's like, stop. Uh, yeah. Like, it's so simple. All right. Because I'll get caught up in these abstract questions that I love. Right. Like, it's a beautiful aspect about life, but there's times when I can't. You know, there's times when, like, shit has to be simplified to doing it or not doing it. It's right. Yet again, like, one of those weird kind of, like, black and white versus gray and, like, abstract versus practical. Yeah. But I just want to share that because it's funny, too, because, like, you know, me, Mr. Big Book A Recovery. And I don't even know fucking most of it the way he does. Yeah. You know? And uh, I don't even fucking know what it said about Nightly's. Right. You know, I'm sitting outside with him when I asked him to sponsor me. And we we're talking about nightly because I was lazy not doing them. And he's like, "Tell me what that page says exactly." I'm like, "Okay." We sit down. You start writing. He goes, "Where did it say in there to write it out?" And I was like, "Ah, it doesn't." <laughs> he's like, "So I need to answer these questions." He goes, "Where does it say in there that you answer those questions?" I go, "Ah." It's <laughs> like direct out of the book, simple. You do it or you don't. I didn't know that it didn't say not to write. I, I've always felt like writing out nightly was inferred from the text, but I didn't uh, know. That's the key word, right? Yeah. Inferred. Oh, yeah. The but question is who's inferring it then, right? True. Me. Yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't say write it out. It says do it. Oh, yeah. You know, it doesn't even say that I answer it. It says I ask myself these questions. It doesn't right. say I then answer them. I just ask them. Which for me has been a cool experience when I actually do my nightlies because then I sit there and I just pray and I ask those questions without trying to think about it. And like instantly things will pop up. Right. You know, probably not the things I would have selected either. Right. Because they're usually more embarrassing. <laughs> Like, I'm a petty bitch today. <laughs> right. You know, if I if I had a dime for every time one of my nightly should have included I was a petty bitch today, I think grad school would be safe. <laughs> I think I'd be okay for grad school. Did you get into grad school? Uh, I will find out in January. Cool. If I'm um, sure you will. If I made it for the interview. Well, I only applied to one program, Tax oh. MFT program. Oh, really? Yeah, so all the exams are get it. We'll find out. Um, in January, I was talking to Will about it today. That's actually why I was late to the podcast. I was talking yeah. to Will in the parking garage. I had to apologize to him for being an ass earlier, and he didn't even care because he's like, I didn't notice. Anyways, besides oh, yeah. the point. You're good, yeah. Um, I was talking about the MFT program, which he's a part of currently. Oh. He's like, yeah, they'll probably let you know in January because interviews are happening early this year in like February. Nice. Awesome, man. So I'm going to spend Christmas break working 50 hours a week and trying not to think about it. <laughs> What, oh, are your, yeah. what are your plans? So you got the rest of undergrad. You got another, uh, what, three years? Two and a half. Two and a half years? Uh, three. What's your major? I don't, I've never actually CFAS. asked you. So it's CFAS. Okay. Uh, you're uh, going for that LCDCI? Yeah, that's that the plan. Too? I okay. mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, my goal for the next couple of years is to tour every break of school I get yeah. and try to get this degree and yeah. then hopefully be a rock star before after I graduate. Bro, what are your streams sitting at right now for Indigo? 
Uh, we had 24,000 this year. I remember, like, going to Jake's when there was maybe 20 of us in the crowd. Yeah, it's like, getting there. I mean, dude, no, like, like you, that's I've what's gone so to shows shitty. Where you've been packed and like people have worn indigo sh- t-shirts. People not in recovery oh, yeah, yeah. have worn indigo t-shirts to your show, which means they've gone to a previous one, bought a shirt there, gone home, kept it, come back to the show wearing your shirt. Oh, honestly, I have. We have way more fans of yeah. normies than people in recovery. People I, in recovery, because I remember when I started going, like, yeah. it was like ten of us from the door. Mm-hmm. And some normies, and like it was a huge part of my early recovery. Man, was watching open stage. Yeah, that was like 20. it's growing, man. It's getting there. I mean, it's, it's awesome. we're still in the building stages, and we you know we're we're working on a release right now. And in February, we're gonna do we're gonna do a new another release, and then my three year party, and then March Ooh. we have a tour plan. When is so. your three year party? I haven't set a date yet, but it'll be probably Wait, three years is January, right? February 9th. February ninth. Okay. So it's probably gonna be the end of February, but. That'll yeah. be our next big show. So. Fuck whatever girl I'm seeing at that time. Valentine's Day is out the window. Let's do that. Yeah. She can deal with it. Right. She can either come with or not. My I'm girlfriend's here. birthday is February 7th. My sobriety is February 9th. And then well, my birthday is February Valentine's 6th. Day. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's dude, crazy. February is a good month. And I, I was laughing earlier because you were talking about your shows and, and that finally taken off. And I, I feel grateful because I got to see a lot of that. Like I just got yeah. to be lucky enough to be there. But I also laugh because I make an ass of myself every one of your shows. Nah, I would yeah, say no, I do, I, Well, I do it on purpose. I just sit at the front and I go play iron. Uh, yeah, every time. No, I I, I, I appreciate like friends who come and support us so much, yeah. man. I mean, yeah, it's it's silly though, you know. Like going back to the self worth, like mm. you know, I get my our our data from Spotify of our streams for the year, and it's like twenty nine thousand or something, and I'm like, damn, like it I could see, have been more. Yeah, and then I see like Getter gets like seven point nine million Getter, million, and I'm like, oh, we're not really doing much. Look at Bruno I'm, Mars, man. I'm like, I don't know if I can cut it. Like, and it's what? like thirty five countries listen to our music, and I'm like, man, but Getter had like seventy nine countries, you know, or whatever. And like, I it's so silly that like even with these accomplishments that the average person's like, dude, that's really awesome. I'm like, yeah, but it's not good enough like i'm not doing good enough you know good enough i don't have enough cookie points i'm the same way pathetic dude you know and like i know that i'll always be that way a little bit and like but i've I've gotten to the point with my mental health and like recovery and everything that i can laugh at it like how silly it is how like i don't know it's funny because like with social media especially like there's a lot of stuff that i do just by myself and it's like purely for self-validation you oh, know yeah. what i mean dude, I'm the same way. and yeah i just but, usually make it someone else's problem through a conversation yeah <laughs> i'm a little old i guess not in age but just in behavior <laughs> yeah here's a weird thing i don't understand that like all the kids my age that are 21 you don't ask for people's numbers anymore no, you just ask for their Snapchat. Snapchat. Yeah. It's fucking weird to me. Yeah. Like, it makes sense. I get it. Um, at the same time, I'm just staunchly against it. Right. Like, no, I'm going to do it my way. Right. But yeah, self-worth, man. I mean, like, that kind of brings us to the topic of, like, the lethality of scoreboards. Oh, yeah. Scoreboarding. I know that, I've like, it's been a rumor that Instagram had talks about, like, taking down views. I thought they were views. still doing that. Did people like riot against it? I, I don't guess? know. I don't know if they've decided to do it. I don't really keep Maybe up. They decided with... they wouldn't be profitable anymore, <laughs> right? Well, I, I mean, they've run at a deficit since their inception, but still. <laughs> well, they're owned by Facebook now, so. But God damn it! You didn't know that? God damn it! They've been owned by Facebook for years, like two years. God damn it! I know that's what's so funny. Everybody only uses Instagram. I'm like, dude, it's owned by Facebook. But God, stop I mean, I use it all. The... Dear Mark Zuckerberg, stop. Zuck. 
The Zook. The well, Zook lizard boy. Uh, man, I really appreciate you coming to do this. And I feel like we hit. And I'm I'm glad that you were the first person in on like me trying to kind of change the format a little bit. Like I feel like up until this is the tenth episode, by the way. So thanks for hey doing it. number ten, baby. Mm, um, up until here. now, I feel like I'm still trying to get a hang of this whole thing. Yeah, you're breaking into it. Yeah, you know, um, like I said before before we started recording, like my whole goal is just try try to like bridge the gap between all my normie friends and, and homies and my recovery homies, and I feel like. A lot of people I see at shows and other stuff could benefit from hearing the stories, these stories of recovery, you know, like that's the thing is like, there's a lot of people in the world who like struggle with substance abuse, yeah. but it doesn't ever get bad enough for them to go to rehab no. or AA. There's also a lot of people in recovery that kind of stay away from quote unquote traditionally normie environments because right. the fear of judgment and all that, you know, yeah. like being in recovery is just another aspect of being a human being. I mean, it's. It's a, it's it's very similar in a sense, you know, to being to to being homosexual or or to being of a particular religion. Like, it is a vital, important part of one's character. But it is that it is a part of one's character. Like someone yeah, it has who, to be your whole identity. Yeah. Like yeah. my name is Travis, and I'm a person in recovery. I am not a person in recovery who happens to be Travis. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's it's a part of the identity itself. Right. It doesn't have to be all of it. Right. And most certainly, from an outside perspective of of labeling and and scoreboarding a bit too. Just a piece of it. Right. You know, like yes, I'm in long term recovery. I don't drink. I don't get high. Right. I'm trying to get. <laughs> Find time sobriety again, whatever that looks like in sex addiction too. Right. You'd also catch me on Tech Campus wearing a gaudy fucking velour tracksuit, <laughs> smoking a cig and talking to anyone about anything. Oh yeah. You know, or like at a pizza joint or at a fucking Cane's at two in the morning because I've been out late and just laughing. All right. You know, or you can find me in a bar. Yeah. With friends. Going dancing or going I to one of your shows. I feel sad for people who are so scared to, like, who are in recovery. I feel like there's people in recovery who are scared to go out to shows or anything at yeah. bars because, like, it's not even like they're worried that they're going to drink. They're worried that somebody that they used to fuck with or used to party with or drink with, like, is going to see them. Yeah. And, you know, then they're, that invalidates their recovery, which I get that, but it's the also. reputation management of it. But that's also like you're not really living in freedom if you yeah. can't. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that like you, you you should be in recovery and you should go to bars every every night of the weekend. Like that's you don't have to do that. You no, know? but the book is explicitly clear. We should go to those things when we have a good reason. Right. And there's there's someone in my life that I know that isn't from Lubbock, and they what was it? We went to see we went to see a movie that in like part of the movie there was like a 25 second scene that included cocaine use. Yeah. And, uh, you know, other parts of the movie had like some pill use and some alcohol abuse, right? And, like, we're leaving the movie theater, and, uh, you know, later on I find out that person was like super triggered by it. And uh. they have like multiple years clean, you know? And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, like, what's, yeah. what's going on there? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but more in the sense of just like, I, that's the type of fear that holds people back from more growth is like, right. I, I didn't get sober so I could walk out of a movie theater halfway through because I'm uncomfortable. Right. I didn't get sober so I could be invited to go to a wedding and go, oh, shit, I can't because there's an open bar. Very little triggers me. There is only one thing that actually triggers me, and it's when somebody 
on screen puts a needle into their arm and I get a, I get a physical reaction to it. So I have to like close my eyes, but I'm not going to like leave or quit watching what I'm watching. But like I do get it in like three years in almost like I still get a, I get a physical reaction. Like I literally, my like arms kind of shake and like, I feel like my stomach It's weird. It's like, and like I used to do that every fucking day, six times a day. You know, it's weird how like, I can't, I can't physically watch it happen on screen. Like it, 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 it literally, makes me feel fucking weird dude i get that like uh i like spicy food yeah yeah uh, like a lot of other alcoholics right. like a I chemical simulator so good fucking um, pickled jalapenos bro that's just candy boy mm. it's really not even that spicy but it's so good. oh my god Cholula's my shit bro <laughs> you don't want to talk about shooting oh. shoot that Cholula. Uh, my fucking uh, caseworker in treatment, he was like, hey, you got some... Yeah, I was like working in the kitchen and he was like, hey, you got some Cholula? And I was like, yeah. He goes, I brush my teeth with that shit. And he was like this like, Cholo, like prison gang <laughs> type dude. Yeah, well, my teeth with that shit. I went to treatment in New Mexico, so we put hatch green chili on fucking oh, everything. Dude, green so chili good. is a shit. But, um, you know, part of my story was like snorting pills. Um, like not for very long. Right. I didn't get pills that often that I could snort because snorting on Prazlan's a waste of feel time. that's kind of similar to eating spicy food. Or like yeah. when spicy food gets in your nose and it burns right there. Yeah. And I was like, <sighs> and I, <laughs> so like I've been getting real congested lately. I don't know why, but constantly throughout the day I find myself just going like, <laughs> like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or uh, I'd say the only other time I've really felt something. Um, like but, the only other times I've really felt like the trigger, like the physical reaction would be, um. Man, uh, there was one time I was, I had like six months clean. I was dating this girl and her friend was moving to Austin and they're doing a going away party. I was living at the door still. Um, and I went out with her to this person's house for this party and they just had like this kitchen island just covered in liquor bottles, right? And like I'm watching people pour cups and take drinks and all that. And I came in at one point and no one else was in there except me. I'm looking at the counter and I started to feel the warm in my chest. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh. So sometimes stuff like that happens. Right. Um, so for me, like, I just, I didn't pray and meditate that morning. I wasn't as spiritually fit as I could have been. So I wound up calling something. I think I called someone to get my shit straight. Yeah, I walked out in front of the house, called someone, got okay, came back in, then I was fine. Um, there's definitely such things as triggers for trauma, for mental illnesses. Right. Um, without, like, a real solution to live in there's triggers for addiction uh but I, my, my, my personal faith is excluding like really specific physical instances triggers are mostly bullshit for addiction right right it just, it just i don't know that that was what i was told and that wound up being my experience i get, I get that for sure uh, i feel like it's you know part of it's fear and part of it is like kind of a, an excuse to be Living in fear, you know what I'm yeah. saying? There's the neural, I think and you got to define the difference between what people colloquially say is triggers and then what a trigger actually is. Because like, right. no matter how recovered you are, there's a such thing as a neurological trigger. Right, right. That's like going to happen. seeing somebody shoot up on screen and yeah, there's, it and triggers there's, a physical reaction. Like that's literally a trigger. There's so many different scientific studies. Right. For some reason, science really loves experimenting on cocaine addicts. Yeah. They fucking love it, dude. Like everything. That's all like, Freud followers. Yeah, dude, yeah. It's like... <laughs> It's just like in our study, we cued cocaine addicts <laughs> images of cocaine use. And it's like, you don't do anything else. Yeah. It's like, they're like, coke heads must be the worst. We um, gave a rat 750 <laughs> grams of cocaine. <laughs> Welcome to Weird Fat and Sober. We're here to talk about Rat Park. <laughs> uh, 
for anyone out there that doesn't watch what uh, rat park it's pretty it's pretty cool but oh, if, yeah if you've been through treatment you know what rat park is and it's kind of like a little inside joke of like yeah we all we all know what rat park we all is know about pleasure unwoven we all know about rat park uh, yeah. especially yeah. if you're pursuing a degree in oh, yeah. psychology or, or benet brown <laughs> yeah well i can't talk shit on it dude i went through that breakup and it was a couple of days after yeah and i've been getting suggestions for a while to like watch benet brown specials and yeah. i watched it on youtube Oh, she's great. Dude, yeah, sure. I, I'm not at all ashamed to admit that I laid in bed watching Penae Brown on my phone. Yeah. And I was just crying. Oh, she's great. Telling myself, sure. Travis, I need to love you. And like, for like an hour. <laughs> Dude, this is what I needed to go through. You know, uh, yeah. this is what I needed. No, I get it. Uh, that's great, man. It's good shit, man. Well, uh, that's an hour and 50 minutes, bro. Whoop, whoop. So thanks so much for doing this, man. And, um, yeah, maybe maybe the twenty or thirtieth episode you can come back on. <laughs> just come back every ten for yeah. a check in. All right. Yeah, I'll just check in at uh, episode twenty for the story of the ice cream truck driver. Twenty or thirty. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> we should just do a stories episode at some point. Yeah. Um, like deep conversations, but then also just like a stories episode. That's. Just... I mean, I kind of want to transition and from like, because like up until now it's been chronological. Like, tell me your story, and it's like, there's a lot of like stuff that I don't think people really care about if I go that route. Like, how was your childhood? But like, you know, I'm trying to like, like this episode I think was perfect as far as like we just had a conversation about like what led to your like addiction and recovery, and we we really went pretty deep on God stuff, you know, which is awesome. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I'd love to have you back on. We'll talk about the ice cream truck. We didn't really get into your SAA stuff. No. So maybe that's next time. Yeah, Yeah. when I'm more stable in that program, I'd love to talk about it. Right now, it's more just a shit show, to be quite honest. No, I'm not going to. That's really tough. I I have other friends in in Sex Addicts Anonymous. It's it's, different, man. It's It's definitely different. It's wild to transition from, like, substance abuse recovery, keep doing that, and then find yourself in the same, like, unwilling indifference and be like what i know this works already though yeah so that's that's definitely something to talk about for sure for sure yeah dude thanks for having me on this was dope this yeah was man. a cool conversation i didn't read the script tape to the floor once <laughs> uh it says here no. <laughs> now cue laugh i thought about doing that in the intro just like having like a piece of paper and it like just like a lie, a lie on it about the person like it yeah. it says here that uh you actually were charged with the uh, Child abduction? <laughs> what was the title for Marcus's? Uh, I don't remember. Cocaine and truck driving? <laughs> it's like... Uh, I can't remember. I it. it. was like... Me. I can't Marcus remember the and Cocaine truck driving. Something like <laughs> that. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I try to come up with good names for him, but... Love it. Well, right, thank man. you for having me on, Dan. I love of course, you, I love you too, man. All right. Thanks, y'all.